Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Difficult issue uh, between two countries that are critically important to the United States as allies, as economic partners, as fellow democracies, and as friends. Uh, and you'll notice that the title of the event includes Ramifications and the Path Forward. Uh, I emphasize forward because the current dispute is due in part to emphasis, uh, events that have taken place uh, months or years or decades or centuries ago. Uh, but rather than dwelling on those issues, uh, we want to identify a way for both countries, and indeed three countries, including the United States, uh, to move forward. Now, the current dispute is part of a cyclical pattern that seems to resurge every few years. Uh, and each time, it, it felt to those uh, officials and experts working at that, each time was the worst. Um, but I think all of us now seem that, that this time is, is very different. Uh, in the past, the economic and the security realms seemed exempt, uh, and indeed they were moderating or mitigating factors that eventually led to a resolution uh, or at least moving issues sort of out of the spotlight to the back burner. Uh, but now that we've, in essence, broken the walls into both the economic and the security realms, uh, it seems to have created a, an, an inertia that uh, the path continues in you know, the unfortunate direction. Now, often uh, officials or journalists from both countries have often sought or depicted U.S. support as, you know, pick one ally over the other. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, in the past, U.S. experts and officials have always had really private, uh, sometimes stern messages for both sides to take action to move forward. Uh, and we'll see how our uh, panelists uh, come down on, on that issue today. Uh, and we really have a, a group of stellar panelists, and I will introduce them later, uh, but first, we have, for what many of you will be a surprise guest, uh, we uh, only heard formal confirmation late yesterday uh, that Mark Knapper uh, will be giving a, a opening remarks. Uh, Mr. Knapper, uh, so, so his appearance may not even be on our website yet, and people may not even have been aware of it. Um, but Mr. Knapper is a, a member of the Senior Foreign Service of the U.S. Department of State. Uh, he's serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Korea and Japan. Uh, and I first met Mark when he was the head of the political military unit in the embassy in Tokyo, uh, well, probably more years than either ago that either one of us would want to admit to. And, and since then, he's had any number of jobs, uh, any number of business cards I think I have in my collection. Uh, that's not to say that he can't keep a job, but just his, uh, his expertise on so many areas has been recognized so that he has uh, served at multiple postings in Tokyo, Seoul, Hanoi, and Baghdad. He was director for Japanese affairs, director for Indian affairs, uh, and more recently he was the deputy chief of mission and then the charge d'affaires uh, at our embassy in Seoul. 
He's twice worked in North Korea in 1997 as the State Department representative to the spent fuel team at Yongbyon, uh, and in 2000 as the, uh, the advance team for then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's trip to Pyongyang. He's been the recipient of a number of awards from the U.S. Department of State, including the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the nation's uh, highest, the highest diplomatic honor. Um, he's a, a graduate of Princeton University and also studied at University of Tokyo, uh, Middlebury College, Go Panthers, uh, the intensive Japanese program, the Army War College. And, and, Mark, when I was at the National War College, Army beat us at the Jim Thorpe uh, Day of Athletics, but not that I'm still bitter about that. Um, and just if that wasn't enough to be envious of, uh, he speaks, <clears throat> excuse me, Korean, Japanese, and Vietnamese. So we are, are very honored to have uh, Mr. Knapper provide opening remarks. He will not be taking uh, questions and answers, but he will uh, be able to provide opening remarks to us. So, Mark, please. Well, thanks very much, Bruce, uh, <clears throat> for the really warm, generous introduction. It reminds me. The old joke about um, wishing my parents were here to hear that, because my dad would have smiled and my mom would have believed everything he just said. So, but thank you. Um, it really is an honor to be here, and, and I apologize for the surprise nature, or the final nature of, of my being able to, to join this today. Uh, appreciate your forbearance, and again, for allowing me to speak. Uh, it's really great to be here with so many people um, who are committed to building stronger ties between and among our three countries, the United States, Japan, and the Republic of Korea. So thank you all uh, for your interest in this important subject. Thank you all for taking the time to be here, especially the panelists, all good friends of mine uh, who are here to, to discuss and hopefully come up with some great ideas for how we can uh, move the relationship uh, between Japan and Korea, but also among the U.S., Japan, and Korea forward. Um, of course, today's topic is uh, Japanese-South Korean trade dispute ramifications and the way forward. And we've got a lot to talk about in terms of economic and security challenges, as well as the implications for U.S. strategic objectives. Um, but I'd like to spend just briefly uh, my time to give an overview of, of what we consider to be the key drivers of peace, stability, and prosperity in Northeast Asia for the past six decades. And of course, those two drivers are the U.S. alliances and friendships with Japan and the Republic of Korea. And the bottom line for us is that thanks to these strong alliance relationships the U.S. enjoys, our three countries have been able to together promote peace, security, and prosperity throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And this has been of untold benefit to all three of our countries, the peoples of our three countries, and many others. Our alliance relationships have allowed us to work hand in glove as over the decades we've taken on some of the most pressing challenges since World War II, whether it was the challenge of the Soviet Union, during the Cold War, whether it was the threat posed by North Korea's nuclear and missile programs, or whether it's the challenges posed by other nations in the region who would seek to overturn the existing economic order and impose their will upon other countries. And today, our close relationships with Japan and the ROK, while originally security alliances created under vastly different circumstances, these close friendships now span the full range of human endeavor, from trade and investment linkages to cooperation on regional and global issues. And we believe that in spite of difficulties today, these relationships are well positioned for the future as we continue to take on together shared challenges based upon our shared values and interests. And while our security treaty commitments to Japan and the ROK do remain the cornerstone 
of our relationships with these two countries and our key, of course, to regional security, they in no way define or limit the current state of our relationships. Our three countries share bonds based in values, whether it's our commitment to human rights and freedom of religion, whether it's our commitment to rule of law, whether it's our commitment to free and open markets, whether it's our commitment to high standards for the free flow of commerce and trade, or whether it's our commitment to the establishment of an inclusive architecture for regional and global trade and investment. And when it comes to our trade and investment relationship with Japan and the ROK, our economies are inextricably intertwined in a way that is uncommon around the world. Both Japan and the ROK, as we all know, are among the United States' largest trading and investment partners. And we seek always to deepen even further our economic ties with these two countries. With Japan, we hope this year to be able to expand our relationship even further with a free trade agreement. And with the ROK, with the Republic of Korea, we will continue our efforts to implement fully our recently amended free trade agreement. But beyond agreements, trade agreements, investment agreements, we also share with Japan and Korea a similar vision for growth and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region, a vision that is market-oriented, standards-based, guided by a commitment to good governments. And with Japan, we have been cooperating now for more than a year in support of President Trump's Indo-Pacific strategy. Together, we have embarked on several shared efforts to promote our common vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And these efforts with Japan include developing regional energy markets, building necessary infrastructure, and promoting digital connectivity so that a free and open Indo-Pacific has a free and open internet. And of course, similarly with South Korea, President Moon Jae-in has endorsed his own Indo-Pacific strategy called the New Southern Policy, which we believe has significant overlap with that of our, of our own country. And this overlap between our two strategies, we believe, will enable us to pursue initiatives across a range of issues, whether global health, energy, outer space exploration, or natural resource management. And beyond security, beyond trade investment, we are working both with Japan and South Korea on a number of regional and global challenges. And together with these two allies, we work together to combat terrorism, to combat piracy, to combat violent extremism. We work together to forestall the spread of weapons of mass destruction. We work together to improve health security in Southeast Asia and Africa. We work together to promote human rights. And we work together to contribute to economic development around the world and provide development assistance. And significantly, this cooperation is no longer just bilateral between Japan and the Republic of Korea, respectively. Our, our cooperation now is increasingly trilateral, whether it's dealing with, again, the threat with the North Korean nuclear missile programs, whether it's promoting women's empowerment, or whether it's uh, promoting development assistance around the world. So this brings us to the subject of the current difficulties between Japan and the Republic of Korea. As an ally and friend to both countries, more than ever, it is critical to ensure that there are strong and close relationships, productive and constructive relationships between and among our three countries. And this is particularly necessary at this time in the face of shared challenges posed by North Korea, Russia, and China. Now, we only have to look at the recent joint patrol by Russian and Chinese aircraft 
as a direct challenge to our three countries and an attempt to take advantage of the current frictions in Japan-South Korea relations. We must not let challengers in the region drive a further wedge between and among our three countries. We believe that Japan and Korea each suffer consequences when their bilateral ties worsen, and we believe that each bears responsibility for improving their relations. We believe that some soul-searching is in order about political decisions that have damaged bilateral trust in recent months. And by the same token, we believe that prudence is required to prevent tensions from contaminating the economic and security aspects of Japan-South Korea ties. Calm, confident words from national leaders, we believe, will generate a similar response from their nations. We hope and we believe that Japan and Korea can find the space for creative solutions. And we, the United States, will continue engaging on this issue and stand ready to facilitate dialogue between our two allies. We are all stronger, and Northeast Asia is safer when the United States, Japan, and the Republic of Korea work together in solidarity and friendship. And of course, much work remains, but we are confident that we will get through this difficult period, and we will remain unified in promoting our shared values and achieving our shared objectives, including promoting peace and prosperity for the peoples of our three countries and for the entire region. Thank you very much. It's often been said that uh, you know our, our panelists need no introduction, and this, the six we have uh, today really, uh, I think, show that to be the case. If you if you don't know who these six people are, you really haven't been working the issue very long. Uh, and even my abbreviated listing of their uh, accomplishments and their their authorships and their credentials. Uh, goes on really for a long time. But um, Scott Snyder is a senior fellow for Korea Studies and director of the program at uh, a program on U.S.-Korea policy at Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the author of numerous books, uh, including South Korea at the Crossroads, uh, co-author of the Japan-South Korea Identity Clash, uh, and then perhaps one of his oldest books, but one I still find to be the best on North Korean negotiating behavior, uh, is his book, Negotiate on the Edge, North Korean negotiating behavior. Uh, prior to CFR, Mr. Snyder was at the Asia Foundation and Pacific Forum CSIS, as well as U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, our next panelist, uh, Yuki Tatsumi, is senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center. Uh, before that, she worked at uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies and also as special assistant for political affairs at the Embassy of Japan in Washington. Uh, numerous pub publications, the most recent being Balancing Between Nuclear Deterrence and Disarmament uh, and Lost in Translation, U.S. Defense Innovation and Northeast Asia. She's the recipient of the uh, Yasuhiro Nakasone Incentive Award and a Letter of Appreciation from the Ministry of National Policy of Japan. Um, Riley Walters is a policy analyst in the Asia of, uh, for Asia Ec uh, Economy and Technology here at the Heritage Foundation and our Asia Studies Center. He specializes in Northeast Asian macroeconomic issues as well as foreign investment, 
emerging technologies in cybersecurity. Uh, he lived in Japan in both the Kumamoto Prefecture and Tokyo while attending Sophia University. He holds master's and bachelor's degrees in economics from George Mason University and is fluent in Japanese. So I'll turn to you, Scott, to, to get us started. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Bruce. I, it's always a pleasure and honor when Bruce calls on me to contribute, but sometimes I wonder if it's because he knows better than to stick his neck out on <laughs> issues like South Korea-Japan relations. Um, and I also just want to say that uh, I fully endorse and agree with what uh, Mark Knapper had to say, and the way I would characterize it is essentially a call to statesmanship uh, by our Japanese uh, and South Korean uh, allies. Uh, now, um, I feel like I'm a bit of a, at a bit of a disadvantage today because I'm supposed to describe the South Korean view on a panel that focuses on the economy when I'm really um, uh, focused more on the political and security dimensions uh, of uh, US-Asia relations. Um, but, um, and so I apologize if I can't stay completely in my lane. But what I want to do is to uh, describe South Korea's response to Prime Minister Abe's announcement of the export restrictions and South Korea's uh, uh, potential removal from Japan's whitelist uh, and tie it to a broader context. And so I think that the structure of my presentation is going to be kind of like uh, watching a video, video of someone peeling an onion backwards. Um, so what's at stake in the South Korea-Japan trade relationship? Well, South Korea and Japan are uh, significant trading partners of each other. Uh, over 1,000 strategic goods are likely to be affected by Japan's removal of South Korea from the white list. Uh, South Korea bought 17% of Japan's exports of chemicals for electronics, and Japan's chemicals industry employs almost 900,000 people. Uh, uh, South Korea's boycotts of Japanese goods uh, mean lost consumer goods sales uh, and a decline in South Korean tourism uh, to Japan. Last year, 7.5 million South Koreans visited Japan. Um, uh, we know that Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix are likely to take uh, a hit, and this is beyond the other cont contextual issues uh, that are affecting uh, the stock markets and the econ and, and the economic indicators uh, of uh, 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 in Asia from the U.S.-China tariff war and domestic uh, economic stagnation. So, what was the South Korean response to Abe's uh, export control announcement? Well, I would describe the response in South Korea as one of shock, alarm, and indignation. I think South Koreans were aghast because they not only considered Japan's criticism of South Korea's export control regime unfounded, uh, but they perceived that Japan was deliberately making false accusations to undermine South, the, the international credibility of the South Korean regime. Uh, and they felt that Japan was trying to create an excuse to retaliate against South Korea for other issues. Um, South Koreans perceived Japan's announcement as a coercive threat aimed at imposing significant costs on the South Korean economy and at interfering in a South Korean judiciary ruling uh, that victims of Japan's forced labor were owed compensation. Now, I see three main policy responses uh, through which South Korea has pursued its case uh, since that announcement. 
the first uh, was a campaign to spotlight Japan's uh, infringements on WTO procedures uh, at the WTO, uh, including uh, presentations uh, in Geneva. Uh, and South Korean government officials have focused on their argument that, the, that Japan's claims are groundless. Uh, at the same time, we've seen South Korean National Assembly representatives uh, point out uh, that um, there are a lot of Japanese components uh, that have been revealed to have gone to North Korea uh, in the UN panel of experts reports. So essentially they're challenging the idea that South Korea has been the source of leakage of sensitive technologies to North Korea. Um, and Japan has responded uh, with its own uh, response to uh, South Korea's uh, uh, efforts to um, uh, discredit uh, Japan's claims. Uh, the second, I think, line of uh, response by South Korea has been an effort to draw the U.S. into the dispute, uh, to turn around Japan's uh, spread of the history dispute to the economic sphere. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know that that effort has been terribly successful. The U.S. is still standing aside from uh, getting involved as a quote-unquote mediator uh, in uh, this dispute. And I would say the third line of response uh, in South Korea, in some ways this is the most interesting and attention-grabbing, uh, has really been the um, unleashing of uh, Korean nationalist outrage against Japan through boycotts of Japanese products. Uh, and I think that this has taken two forms. Uh, one more negative, in my view, and the other more positive. Uh, the negative aspect is uh, includes a social media campaign from the Blue House that insists that South Korea will never again be defeated by Japan uh, and a doubling down on the idea of a peace economy that knits the two Koreas together to counter Japan's threat to, to uh, Korean economic security. Um, and also in the Korean media, we've seen kind of a critical review of Japan's contributions to South Korea's early economic development uh, in the form of an examination of Japan's involvement in building the Seoul subway uh, and uh, its involvement in uh, helping uh, South Korea's steel industry start. But the good side, I think, of South Korea's effort to harness national spirit on this issue arises from um, the channeling of some of that outrage into a focus on renewed competitiveness, innovation, uh, and, an and an indigenization drive. Uh, in some ways, you know, this could even be an opportunity for Moon. Uh, to effectively address South Korean economic stagnation. And I note that the South Korean government has announced that it would in, uh, invest $6.5 billion on R&D in order to cut dependency on J Japanese imports. But on balance, I would say that uh, these responses have been hobbled. I think that South Korea is ill-equipped to win an international diplomatic campaign against Japan on the economic merits alone. Uh, I'm skeptical that uh, the reports in the South Korean media about a campaign to damage the success of the Tokyo Olympics would be successful. Um, and uh, I worry when I see the politicization of the relationship with Japan in South Korean domestic politics. Um, 
And so here's where I have to dig a little bit deeper and maybe go a little bit beyond um, the uh, beyond my lane, uh, because I think we also have to take into account. Um, I actually think that President Moon started on a good track in his relations with Japan by underscoring a two-track policy uh, focused on separating future uh, from the past. Uh, and the question is, uh, how did things go wrong? Uh, and I would say that um, the Moon administration ended up kind of putting itself uh, in a box uh, on policy toward Japan, um, in part because of the uh, dismantling of the HANA Foundation, uh, which was part of the uh, Park-era Comfort Woman Agreement, uh, and in part related to the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision uh, and Abe's growing distrust of Moon. Uh, and so, ironically, Moon finds himself uh, in the same kind of box that Park Geun-hye found herself in uh, when she started off uh, her term, uh, putting the comfort woman issue in front of everything else uh, in South Korea-Japan relations. Um, and so, you know, now we're in a situation where, you know, actually the dispute with Japan has helped uh, Moon's public approval ratings but it comes at the cost of fanning nationalist responses by encouraging the elevation of domestic politics over the bilateral relationship uh, on both sides. Uh, and here is where I'm a little bit critical of the Moon administration for not taking the political leadership necessary to protect the relationship with Japan from domestic political spillover, which is arguably in Japan's longer-term strategic interest. Instead, I think the Moon administration has hid behind the idea that it is radically resetting and curtailing the role of the executive by not interfering with the judiciary's role. But the executive has a special responsibility to advance national interests, not only through domestic policy, but also through foreign policy. And this includes upholding international agreements, uh, including the Japan-South Korea Normalization Treaty while adhering to liberal democratic principle of independent judiciary and separation of government powers, the Moon administration's approach has yet to realize an optimal, optimal balance between domestic and foreign affairs. And what I'd like to see is a reinforcement of the legitimacy of the Korean court ruling um, uh, and uh, an affirmation of the conclusion that there's individual claim to compensation for forced labor uh, by seeing the South Korean government start by uh, honoring the ruling by paying compensation domestically while at the same time trying to pursue a dialogue uh, with Japan on that issue. I think this is a better course of action than the unilateral seizure of assets pursuit of further tit for tat or continued elevation of domestic politics over international relations and interests. But, of course, it also assumes that there would be a willing partner with whom to have that discussion. Now, I want to conclude with a kind of fundamental reason why I think that bad relations with Japan is a problem for the Moon administration, and it's really related to the fact that South Korean foreign policy has been most successful uh, especially under progressive administrations focused on North Korea, 
when South Korea has had positive relations with all of the four major powers. And I think that the highlight of that uh, in our recent experience was actually the Kim Dae-jung administration um, in 1999, who successfully built on positive relationships with the four major powers around Korea in order to achieve a historic opening uh, with North Korea. But of course, one of the prerequisites uh, that undergirded that approach was that Kim Dae-jung had a successful meeting uh, and agreement with then Japanese Prime Minister Obuchi, and they signed the 1998 Japan-South Korea Friendship Agreement. So aside from the question of whether current leaders are able to live up to the high bar of statesmanship set by their predecessors, it raises the question of whether Moon's policies toward North Korea can succeed in the absence of a good relationship with Japan. And so what I worry about is that the downturn in Japan-Korea relations denies Moon the ability to mobilize the needed leverage for better relations with Beijing and Tokyo, and that South Korea's problematic relations with Japan will increasingly become a drag on the U.S.-South Korea alliance as well. On the current path, Moon will be constrained, South Korea will be frustrated, because South Korea will have less control than it should on critical security issues that are directly consequential to South Korea's national interests. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Scott. Yuki? Thank you, Bruce. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. And uh, thanks again for Heritage to uh, have me have you back in this uh, auditorium. It's always an honor to come back and uh, share share a panel with my uh, good friends. And then I also would like to second uh, what Scott said about the um, um, opening remarks uh, given by Mark Napper. Um, I think thanks. Thank you very much for those forward-looking wars in this very difficult time for Japan and South Korea. Um, I would also like to uh, give a disclaimer that uh, my primary area is more of a political military realm, so I'm going a little bit out of my box here. But um, And then I also think that uh, Riley will have a far better insight into uh, actual trade-focused uh, um, impact on this issue. So I'll try to... What I, what I would try to do is to... Um, not Japanese uh, perspe perspective per se, but what what it looks to me sitting in sitting in Washington looking at these issues for a long time, and which what boils down to is this is really an unfortunate turn of the events. That is the one point that I would like to stress. And this turn of events have been happening because of the many um, piling up of uh, many factual misunderstanding which kind of feeds off of each other. And now I think the two countries have gone into this negative spiral where it's really hard for both of them to get out of. So just a couple of points about uh, what I can see, what I, what I saw as the uh, misunderstanding of how these recent uh, turn of event worked. Initial reporting kept talking about embargo regarding the uh, restriction of the uh, Japanese, this, uh, this time Japanese government's decision of uh, trade restriction. It's not embargo. Uh, we often read about what the white list is and what what is not. And also what determines as a white list is not based on, depend, uh, based on the uh, actual law. Um, it's given, given by the policy directives. So I'll come back to this point at the begin at, at the end, but uh, whitelist, whitelist, in other words, can be revised again if 
Japanese government decides that it is a good time to revise, and the issue is how to get there. But、um, that's that's all the more for a later discussion. And also, this、uh, this Japanese government this recent decision is based on Japanese government's concern about the implementation of the export control regulations in South Korea. But this is separate. The direct impact actually hits Japanese companies who tries to do business with South Korea. And. The、uh, and then also the list of the item is you probably heard this over and over so I won't repeat but three items as opposed to initial reporting、um, initial reporting some of them said you know the actual economic impact goes over to like thousands and thousands of items and lists which is not true and second point is that、uh, limited economic impact. Here, let me、uh, talk a little bit about whitelist.、Um, whitelist is what you what you might call as the、uh, preferential treatment on the econ- economic、um, export control license provision. And for that, for for a country to get on that list from Japanese government's perspective,、um, two concerns needs to be addressed. One is that、um, they have a One concern is that you know there is Japanese government doesn't have a concern that the、uh, whatever the technology material that goes out of Japanese business to a country export to the country will not be re-exported to a different、um, different countries that could use this from the、uh, different purpose of the end use when they first ap- apply for the license. Or should those mistakes happen, Japanese government have enough confidence in the other governments that they can rectify that. At minimum, Japanese government needs to have a reliable consultative body or fora that they feel confident that they can they can address those issues. So, and then also currently there are only 26 countries that the Japanese government give, gives this a whitelist status. And many, I would say, many of the Japan's really important economic partners are not included on this whitelist. None of the ASEAN countries are part of it. Taiwan is not a part of it. India, which、uh, Japan considers as a very important strategic partner, India is not on that list. So, just to highlight, this is just to highlight that this is not a blank, you know whitelist is not this like blanket preferential export control treatment. And thirdly,、um, here I would go back to this uh, government. Um, Japanese government needs to have the、uh, reliable, I would say, reliable.、Um, emphasize that、uh, consultation fora to discuss any kind of export control related concerns with the,、uh, its partner countries. And in fact, those consulted consultative、um, fora are important so that Japan and this other country can work together. To make sure that the、uh, global export control regime will remain robust, and we often nowadays, because of the、uh, um, tension between U.S. and Iran, we often、um, hear about the coalition of willing over the、uh, Straits of Hormuz.、Um, a friend of mine who is actually an export control expert told me export control is more is very much like a coalition of willing. That each country has its own responsibility to have the 
have the appropriate regulations and enforcement of those regulations to uphold export con global export, export control regime, which, which, uh, whose ultimate purpose is to prevent the proliferation of the sensitive technologies and materials into the wrong, falling into the wrong hands. And really, like uh, Mark said about how Japan, U.S., and South Korea all shares the uh, values of liberal international order, democracy, some of those fundamental values, these two countries actually really need to be working together to stay on the positive force to uphold this global export control regime. So again, I would reiterate that it is really unfortunate that the two countries which United States considered as a key allies in Northeast Asia and beyond on to uphold some of those very critical values are kind of going bad against each other. I think that is the most unfortunate of all this. Um, you may ask, can Japan done, could have done, could, could they have done anything differently? Possibly. For example, the timing of the uh, July, um, July announcement of um, them start, starting to invite public comments about the revision of their uh, trade restriction was less than desirable timing. And some people talk about when you give them more, you know, when, you, when you're late on like a rent payment um, and if you're a land, landlord, you just don't go ahead and like, you know, shut down the power and ev evict. You will give warning to your tenants that if you don't do this in three month time, this is going to happen. You just don't do it like overnight. I have no idea whether those kind of a quiet warning has been provided from Tokyo to South Korea. But if they have not been, then um, that could have been provided. But then again, um, Japan-South Korea bilateral export control consultation have not been taking place for the last three years. So in the absence of those consultation fora, Tokyo could have concluded that there's no, we, we try to give warning in these consultation fora, but we couldn't. And I, I, I can't pass any judgment on that. And um, those potential steps actually was, I, I think, made harder for for happen because of the political atmosphere that, that Scott laid out um, that before me. But can we stay stuck here? It is really, really not desirable for two countries to stay this way. So is there any way forward? Um, I would like to highlight and also very much concur Mark's, uh, Mark Napper's point about U.S.-Japan ROK partnership is really more than just about North Korea. It is really about free and open Indo-Pacific region. Um, it is really about upholding those values that three countries actually do share. And we have to kind of go back to the basic, that the crux of this actual export, you know, this disagreement over export, export control regulations is really that, that um, regardless of unfortunate politicization of the issue that has been going on in both countries, frankly. This is really about disagreement between the two governments, export control authorities, about how each other enforces their regulations. So the only, path, only way path forward, it seems to me, is that those consultation needs to resume. If bilateral um, setting is too hard, Maybe it needs to happen in a trilateral, but I think at least it's 
I, I think it's uh, someone's um, two countries do, do need to um, begin to talk on how they can resume what actually was happening before three years ago so that um, Japan and Japan and South Korea can actually come up with the, the real path forward and at the end so that uh, um, in, in, in the manner so to uh, further um, uphold and actually uh, strengthen the uh, global export control uh, system that are in place today. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, Riley? Oh, just one thing is, uh, one thing I mean, a lot of the, the panelists have written on this topic, uh, but since you're in my house, I get to shamelessly uh, plug my own product. So Riley and I just had a paper come out about an hour ago uh, on the topic, and I think it, hopefully it was in the lobby or whatever. So anyway, I know the other panelists have, have done so, and they can plug their own products. But Bruce, I was going to shamelessly plug our piece. Oh, okay, well, you can do it well, again. Yeah, uh, it's on heritage.org. Look it up. You can look up either Bruce or I's profile page. It should be on there as well. Um, so I'm going to take a. I'm going to start at the thirty thousand level and then kind of work my way back to the ground. Um, the global supply chain, I think, uh, in general, is going through a serious series of changes right now, uh, particular particularly in Asia. Um, last year we saw Japan finalize two mega deals, right? We saw them uh, finalize the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP, or TPP-11, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that was a, a deal between uh, economies with a cumulative GDP of, of around $11 trillion. Um, it also finalized a uh, economic partnership agreement with the European Union, again, uh, com uh, cumulatively... Um, 24 trillion worth of GDP. Um, so big supply chain shifts coming forward when it comes to uh, traded goods. Meanwhile, um, of course, the world has watched as the U.S. continues, uh, has escalated trade tensions with its major trading partners like Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan last year. And uh, we really continue to watch as the U.S. escalates the trading tensions with China as well. So a lot of changes are going on. Uh, to the global supply chain. Um, but all this, of course, uh, needs to be taken within the context that the global supply trade in general, uh, the, the, the flow of trade has been slowing. It's been slowing, it's been slowing, uh, just as along with slow growth uh, for uh, regional economies. Um, merchandise exports, uh, just in general, are expected to dip below 3% of GDP, global GDP, this year. And so, of course, these are concerns, um, but mostly particularly around the trading of commercial and agricultural products. There are growing concerns, of course, around the future trade of emerging and foundational technologies, uh, products that have dual use for commercial and military application. And so that's where uh, this recent rise in tension between uh, Japan and South Korea really becomes relevant, I think. Um, as Yuki was mentioning, sort of the history of this, uh, back in early July, Japan announced it was revoking the export license for Japanese companies to export three, these three chemicals to South Korea. Uh, not, not banning it, just revoking a special type of license. Um, 
These chemicals are, of course, important for the development of certain computer chips, like semiconductors, and uh, it's also valuable for research and development. And so, therefore, the Japanese government found they warranted oversight through their export control system, right? So these are, again, export controls are regulated through a specific system, not just general goods. Um, the Japanese government, of course, claimed that these companies, um, the, the export of these products was being mismanaged, uh, that these companies were somehow really not uh, adequate in sort of the way that they they uh, filed for their, their license and therefore revoked their license, shifting the bulk license, shifting them to a more general license, which, of course, takes, takes more time. Uh, well, given the longer time that it takes to acquire these licenses and the shorter amount of time it takes to actually meet the demand uh, of these ex, uh, chemicals, Japan more or less cut off these chemicals' exports to South Korea which is a problem, um, because of the three chemicals, uh, bear with me here, uh, fluorinated polyamide, photoresist, and hydrogen fluoride, uh, Japan controls roughly 94, 92, and 70% of the global supply. Uh, South Korea, South Korean imports of these products from Japan are roughly 85, 83, and 42%, so significant global share, uh, not just for Japan, but J uh, South Korea's reliance on Japan for these chemicals. Um, the 46 percent of um, South Korea's reliance on 46 percent of hydrogen fluoride also comes from China, uh, which means uh, South Korea, of course, may have to shift even more of its reliance onto China, which uh, can have some implications uh, for uh, developing supply chains in the future, and of course, future implications when it comes to uh, things when uh, when South Korean Chinese relationships get difficult. Um, so uh, we also have that Jana uh, Japan announced that it would remove South Korea off of its preferred trading lists or white lists. This is, of course, um, this allows Japanese exporters a little bit more freedom to export these controlled exports to partner countries. Um, and the revision will go into effect at the end of this month, uh, August 28th, and it could impact up to a thousand products. Um, according to the Federal uh, uh, Federation of Korean Industries, uh, moving to the white list could cost uh, South Korea up to uh, 27 billion in lost exports. Um, this, though, should be taken within the context that uh, exports uh, are 44 percent of uh, South Korea's GDP. So. Um, while South Korea relies a lot on exports, uh, 27 billion is roughly only about 5%. Uh, but its major exports are of semiconductors, integrated circuits, um, and so there's a lot of implications there. So as we've already seen, Samsung, one of South Korea's largest chip producers, is already seeing significant profit losses. And of course, it will be difficult to get South Korea place back on the whitelist, it'll have to go through this similar um, regulatory process, which the cabinet, J uh, Japan's cabinet would have to approve. So it's not it's not a legislative procedure, it's more executive, I guess you'd call it. Um, beyond the immediate and future costs from the slower export control approval process, from this, um, 
you know, there is growing trade uncertainty, I think, uh, between the two countries and regionally, of course. Uh, and I worry about uh, downstream negative effects, particularly if uh, this trade tension bleeds into U.S. economic interests. Uh, already, you know, not, not necessarily uh, because of these export control revisions, but we are seeing negative effects uh, such as the boycotts of certain Japanese products, Japanese auto sales in Japan uh, down, um, the, the negative effect that uh, South Korean tourism, a decrease in South Korean tourism to Japan could have, uh, which of course most of those come from just an overall deterioration in Japanese-South Korean relations. Um, but significant nonetheless, uh, tourists from South Korea are generally the second largest group to visit Japan uh, after those from China. In May, 600,000 South Koreans visited Japan. Um, but, but back to export controls. Um, while these are still traded goods, uh, th th therefore it, it sort of warranted a movement, uh, a discussion at the World Trade Organization, which uh, South Korea and Japan are both members to. And so two weeks ago we saw both of these countries argue their case uh, at, a, a, at a WTO general council meeting. Uh, South Korea argues Japan has, is violating Article 11 of the WTO, which prohibits members from putting restrictions on exports. Uh, there, uh, the claim is similar to how uh, China restricted rare earth material exports to Japan almost a decade ago. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Japan is maintaining that any changes to its export controls are allowed under WTO uh, Article 21, which grants security exemptions from the WTO uh, because export controls, again, dual use, national security concerns, different from the general trade of goods. And so, um, you know, I, I, while I believe I don't, I don't believe we've uh, yet to see a, a formal dispute filed at the WTO. Uh, even then, once we begin this process, it could take years before the WTO even produces a ruling on this, which could be too late for a lot of these supply chains, which rely more on shorter time frames. Um, now, um, in, in the Pacific, uh, so when it, when it comes to the Pacific, um, the U.S. Uh, is going through its own process right now to adjust the way that it regulates export controls uh, to include, include advanced technologies, uh, those two could have significant economic implications, uh, specifically for multinational companies from allies like Japan and South Korea, uh, and, and, uh, you know, definitely upsetting, potentially upsetting global supply chains even further. Uh, you know, I would, I think that, for example, uh, new rules, uh, regulating, for example, again, uh, just the export of autonomous vehicles and, and those technologies could um, negatively impact the operations of automobile companies like Hyundai and Toyota, um, not just, of course, in the United States, but internationally. So, um, again, I, I, I'd like to just sort of plug Bruce and I's paper. Um, again, we go a little bit deeper into this. Um, we have a number of recommendations. Um, Yuki already mentioned this, uh, a resumption of bilateral export control dialogues between the Republic, um, before, between South Korea and Japan should resume. Um, this is, this is definitely crucial. Uh, but even beyond that, if, if Japan's concerns, 
about how security or how South Korea administers its export controls. If this is a national security concern, uh, then it, it could possibly be a concern shared by that of the United States, and therefore uh, warrants uh, U.S. to be involved on this level as well through our export control administration. Um, but even beyond that, I think a, a trilateral would be beneficial uh, for everyone uh, at a working level uh, because of the aforementioned regula regulatory changes that the United States is thinking of. Again, this would allow the U.S. to discuss some of its forthcoming regulation changes on emerging technology, how it could impact uh, companies from Japan and South Korea. Uh, and beyond that, just kind of going back to the 30,000-foot level, I think, um, you know, I think it's in everyone's interest that we sort of resume a more stabilized economic relationship, given all the other uncertainty that we're creating <laughs> and others are creating, uh, and the general slowing trends in the world. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, three very good presentations covering the issue, I think, from fair, three very different but complementary uh, aspects. Uh, we're going to open the floor to Q&A. One sort of one question I'll just put on the table for uh, the panelists to sort of incorporate as they uh, respond to other questions would be sort of, and some of it's been covered, but to push a little more is, you know, what role should the U.S. be playing? Uh, you know, a public role, a private role, a mixture of that. Uh, you know, how involved should we be? Uh, and, and we have covered some of that, but just something to keep in mind. Um, so as we open the floor, uh, as usual, please state your name and an organization if you uh, ha affiliation if you have one. A short, let me emphasize, short question. Uh, and because this issue is very sensitive, it covers a number of different issues of, of great concern of the countries, uh, I do want to emphasize no speeches. Uh, please treat our panelists with respect uh, and otherwise, I will cut you off. And just as a reminder, I am a third-degree black belt. Um, and just one final note is uh, so the schedule may shift a little bit. We may be a little delayed because we have the keynote speech. Uh, and so Yuki may need to leave right at the end. But we're going to try to keep it fairly close to on schedule. So we're looking for opening the floor to questions. Kevin. Thank you. I'm Kevin Mayer, uh, NME, because I'm formerly with the State Department. You know, one lesson I learned in 30 years in diplomacy is sometimes we make the mistake of assuming our our uh, partners on the other side actually want to resolve a situation. So my question for the panelists is, in this case, without getting into details of the historical issues that have led to the economic frictions now, do you think the Moon administration really wants to resolve these issues, resolve these issues the historical issues? Or is he using them for domestic political reasons? Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think the Moon administration wants to resolve the issues. It's just that they have a uh, uh, possible objective in terms of resolution that is outside the conventional wisdom of how we've thought about these issues for a long period of time. Um, and... Um, I, you know, there's also divisions within South Korea uh, on how this should be dealt with. Uh, but, um, and, and so, you know, the argument that I made essentially was a national interest-based argument for why it is in South Korea's interest to maintain the existing uh, structure uh, and affirm the normalization treaty 
um, while working to resolve outstanding differences uh, rather than deconstructing uh, the foundation for the relationship. And so, you know, as we have moved further down this road, I mean, initially I have to say that I was um, skeptical about uh, views that the aim of President Moon was actually to dismantle or to reopen a negotiation on the normalization treaty itself. Uh, the further down this road that we've gone, uh, the more it seems that there may be influences in the Blue House uh, close to President Moon who you know, may really hold to that aim. Um, and the question is whether that's really the right course of action. Um, and I'll just say one other thing. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to maybe say take a little bit more time on this, but you know, the other thing I think we have to take into account for President Moon is that um, he's at the vanguard of a political uh, movement that domestically has experienced success in achieving remarkable political transformation, uh, both with the uh, transition from authoritarianism to democracy in the late 80s, you know, and with the candlelight demonstration to some degree. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised that some people in that uh, supporting group might also think that they can apply uh, some of that success to the international sphere. Uh, but I feel it's because they don't understand the international sphere. Uh, and so, you know, I think we have to take into account uh, what that experience is in order to understand um, where they're coming from. But this is not necessarily the right moment to completely revise, you know, the relationship. Uh, it is a moment to, uh, you know, figure out if there are ways to resolve uh, you know, an issue uh, related to, um, uh, you know, forced labor claims that has now, um, you know, had a ver verdict in the Korean Supreme Court in a, in a way that um, affirms humanitarian principles while also, in my view, uh, maintaining the foundation for that relationship. Hi, uh, Scott Thompson from Samsung. Uh, Yuki, you described how Japanese companies are the ones uh, who are suffering from the export restrictions with regard to their uh, actual or potential customers. How would you characterize how Japanese companies uh, are therefore responding uh, to those consequences to the Abe government and more broadly? Thank you. So um, in short, um, I, can, I can only give you like a very brief response, but not specific to this recent issue. Um, Japan Economic Federation has expressed for a while the uh, potential economic impact that uh, Japanese business might suffer with the uh, political tension between the two countries. And then I can only suspect that their concern has intensified since then. But, but, but again, I will go back to the kind of a technical side of the um, export control a little bit. But... Um, under Japanese system, that norm is uh, individual licensing, I mean, individual license application. And a comprehensive license application, in which case this three chemicals that uh, um, Riley talked about was, um, was, had been included, it's, it's rather a comprehensive license application is rather exception. Um, that's kind of like a ballpark 
a very rough description of it. And under Japanese system also, even for the export to the United States, depending on the materials and items, um, Japanese Japanese companies still have to go individual license um, export licenses. But when you talk about individual licenses, this is uh, based on their contract. So it's not like every shipment that it goes out from Japan to South Korea, same company goes back to like a multiple. So if the contract is usually contract is year long, so once you get it, as long as that specific shipment is based off of that contract, Japanese company do not have to return to METI for those to you know for the reissue of those licenses. So it's not per shipment; it's per contract. So that's number two. But that and then also um, the uh, items that they need to go back for those more stringent side of the license application is more limited because it is limited on um, it, it has to be categorized under Japanese government's uh, um, categorization, either weapon related materials or dual use that has uh, that Japanese government has a serious concern about the potential to be weaponized if not treated appropriately and without verification of the end use and end user. So I would just say that um, Japanese um, Federation of Japanese Japanese Economic Federation had already expressed that impact, but I would think that, and given these chemicals, it is true that that is dual use, so it could be defense, defense, non-defense, but it's still the national security con uh, concerns can be applied. So it is a little bit premature to say what the long-term economic impact is going to be, but Given that, um, and then actually this uh, regulation change hasn't really taken effect yet. So we're kind of all talking about in speculation here that um, by, let's say, end of the third quarter, um, we might start seeing some impact. But even under that, given... Um, Given the so many other countries that Japan also considers economic partner, like India, which between two countries they have a lot of high tech um, trade going on, um, you don't hear about these like you know massive economic damage to the other side. So my rough guesstimate would be the impact could be fairly limited short term, but if gets prolonged, then I'm not quite sure. Riley probably will will be is a better position to kind of assess that. I, I I agree with uh, Yuki. I, I think the immediate impact, and even to a certain degree, the, the long impact will be hard to judge. Um, you know, the we, we understand the you know, global supply of the three chemicals, but of the thousand other products, I, I haven't really had time to digest that. I think most people haven't, so it's hard to to grade. But of the three chemicals, I think there are concerns about what it means on for South Korea reliance when it can't get those products from Japan anymore. Where's it going to go? Um, you know, for example, Russia has offered to supply those chemicals. Um, whether they actually can or not, that's a different question. But you know, it goes to show that you know this the the, the deterioration in uh, Japan South Korea relations codified in this trade tension is you know being taken advantage of by potential adversaries in the region. Because one of the issues that people have raised is that if, if Korea to compensate a shifting away from a Japanese supplier to a Chinese or Russian supplier, then that creates a lot of strategic issues that the U.S. would be concerned about. 
Uh, but then some have pointed out that sort of the purity of the products are is like 99 point and then 12 nines percentage pure. Uh, and they can't get that from Chinese suppliers. So, uh, you know, there's the, con the strategic concern, but then there's also just the technical requirement that other suppliers may not be able to compensate for the, the high quality of Japanese products. So, ma'am. Anna Rudolph, MEFG Bank. Um, thank you so much for all of your remarks. I especially appreciated um, the kind of ideas for resolution moving forward. Um, to whatever extent you're comfortable expressing, I'd be curious to hear your prospects for um, whether you think any of these kinds of opportunities for resolution could happen before Japan moves forward uh, with removing South Korea from the whitelist this month. I think um, I think the whitelist issue might be too little too late. Um, it's it's been decided, you know, cabinet approval. Basically, we're going forward with this. It happens on the 28th. Uh, again, it's going to take a, a similar process to get them back on cabinet approval. I think that maybe feeds more into the, the political dynamic at that point, uh, whether they can actually be accepted back into it. Um, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, um, if there are national security concerns, then the United States probably shares those concerns. And so uh, there should probably be a, um, more of a, a drive for the U.S. to get involved in that regard. Timing as an issue. I mean, right now, it's supposed to be August. It's supposed to be really quiet here, but uh, that's not the case. Um, and then, you know, uh, just a question of capacity. Uh, how how much time does BIS have, the, the Bureau of uh, Industry and Security at the Department of Commerce, have to actually meet with these officials, given all the other jobs that they have to take care of? I, I would just say that there are two uh, challenges, you know, that we see that make this different from previous cases. Uh, and one is the metastasization of the issue beyond initially politics and security to the economic uh, sphere and now possibly back to the security sphere. Uh, and the other is that uh, the U.S., I think, role uh, is uh, kind of um, proceeding from, it, uh, at best, a standing start uh, because we had a prolonged a vacuum uh, in the position that would normally be the senior official addressing these issues. And so I think those are factors that make it more difficult to come up with a near-term solution. It's probably going to take time uh, and uh, some new ideas in order to uh, stop uh, the slide from continuing. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll say, I, I second to both. Um, both um, bilateral consultation toward re resolu resolving this issue is probably difficult um, for the reason that Scott laid out so well um, happening in bilateral basis. So it probably will ha has to be in a trilateral. But um, this actually, because of the nature of this is export control, this is, I think, there is also there is a lead um, agency in all governments, but then this is essentially going to come down to like a multi-intra-agency uh, process on all three countries. So that's, again, the issue of capacity. So it's because it's export control and there's a national security concern based, at least one participant claims so, um, you know, DOD's the, the interagency board on, like, technology transfer and then, you know, people on the state and DOD on the U.S. side that looks at industrial security from their agency's lens will also have to be involved. Um, 
uh, picture were more or less similar in the Japanese side and our uh, Japanese side and our case side. And what makes it really difficult for U.S. to play a role is that U.S. is going through its own export control reform in the manner that it makes. You know, we often read about high-tech Cold War between U.S. camp and Chinese camp, to the point where you know U.S. government itself is really weighing in on its allies and partners to take whole new, fundamentally different look at their own countries, like your know, multinational corporation supply chain, and also Americans' own multinational multinational corporation supply chain. So, U.S. system is in flux in big time. And you, you probably can't even predict how this is going to shake out, right? At the end, so for U.S. to going through that flux in-house and then try to、um, try to have this consultation with two of its allies who has serious disagreement is probably going to be a difficult process. That doesn't say that it cannot happen, but because it really has to start from somewhere, and then I think for it to start from somewhere, I think trilateral will probably be the best best for us. Well, and there are, you know, concerns that as we're rushing down the road to going off a cliff even further, you know, there are signposts that we may be breezing by. We've got, you know, the implementation of the white list.、Uh, we've got the August fifteenth speech by President Moon, and see what signals he sends there.、Uh, late August, when the Jisomia, the military intelligence sharing agreement between. Uh, Japan and South Korea needs to, it is it's automatically renewed unless either side decides to pull out. And there have been some signs from、uh, one or both countries they may do that. So there are a number of deadlines or events that are coming up which could further exacerbate it, and that raises the issue whether the U.S. needs to get involved not only behind the scenes, but whether you know, President Trump needs to sort of publicly implore both allies to sort of first do no more harm. Uh, and then try to work to step back. So、uh, I think there's really a lot of cause for concern、uh, that it not only is not going to get better,、uh, but could get even worse. Sir,、yeah, right here.、Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rubinowitz. I'm retired. And Vladimir Putin's Russia has been implicated in provoking、uh, conflict and dissent、uh, all over the world through fake news and social media and such. And there have been reports about other countries, North Korea, China, and Iran, among others, doing the same. I'm wondering: Is there any evidence of、uh, some third outside party instigating or encouraging this dissent,、uh, possibly through public opinion or such? Not that I know of will be the short answer, but、um, they can. You know, I mean, especially you know, Bruce, you you're from I, Intel. I, well, I, I would say I, I think this is really Japan and South Korea own this one,、um, and it's issues that go back quite a long time.、Uh, I, I think North Korea, China, and Russia enjoy seeing two of our critical allies at loggerheads with each other.、Um, At a time when a lot is going on in Asia,、uh, so I don't think it's really any of the the other actors influencing this, but I think they are enjoying the difficulties、uh, that our two allies are going through. I think that's a perfect question、okay. for the next panel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll save the really tough ones for the next panel. Go, Patrick. Right here.
I think it came from Wilson Center. Um, my question to the panel is that if you suggest um, U.S. intervention on this issue or trilateral discussion, do you think U.S. have to intervene on the historical issue as well or just stay on the economical sphere? Uh, Scott, you can. Um, well, I'll, I'll. I mean, the, the safer approach would be to uh, focus on economics first. It's a question of whether that is going to be sufficient uh, to, you know, really um, uh, create the guidelines, uh, you know, necessary to um, stabilize the relationship. Uh, and yet, I mean, for the U.S. to get involved in looking at the historical side of things, uh, you know, also gets very complicated because there are a lot of political cross currents in Japan and South Korea that uh, are a little bit unpredictable and would have to be managed for the U.S. to be able to uh, get too deeply involved in that. I agree. Um, it is, and then frankly, I think it'll be more productive if U.S. intervention, private or open, will stay focused on this particular issue. Um, but like Scott said, um, whether that's um, – I, I would even go further. It's like whether being able to do that is feasible or not is an open question, I think. Well, I think the, the economic and the security aspects now are sort of manifestations of the historical disputes. Um, and the U.S., and we've seen recent comments by Trump administration officials of sort of it's up to the two countries to resolve those. Um, you know, that said, during the previous iteration uh, of this dispute, the Obama administration was involved um, behind the scenes, very private. Uh, but my understanding was, you know, very stern messages to both capitals uh, that the other capital wasn't necessarily aware because we'd hear from both sides that sort of you're only picking on us. It's like, no, no, the other side is getting equally stern messages. And I think the Obama administration uh, involvement was in part responsible for the Comfort Women Agreement in 2015. So that is an area where we did get into the, the historic issue, but not certainly not as a judge or arbiter of which side was right or what issues needed or what actions needed to be taken, but it was a way of trying to b move both countries toward a resolution or at least addressing the issue uh, so that the history issue could then no longer be impeding on present day issues. So that would be sort of an example of what an administration could do, uh, even in the very difficult historical issues. My name is Hong Lim. I'm, I'm working at Wilson Center as a junior scholar. So it is my pleasure to attend this seminar. So I just wonder, I could ask two questions, small questions. One, uh, one question is to Mr. Scott, because you said, please specify more, more your statement that Moon administration should balance between domestic affairs and foreign affairs. The second question is that do you think China, China's rise, China's military rise and assertiveness toward East, Northeast Asia will provide a cooperation among three states, among, uh, between two states, Korea and Japan, even further among three states with the United States? Thank you so much.
Um, in my presentation, what I was trying to suggest is uh, that uh, in the Moon administration, domestic politics has been allowed to kind of uh, uh, drive uh, policy um, uh, without sufficient regard to foreign affairs and national interest. And essentially what I was saying is that I think that there is a way to accommodate both political needs. Uh, and that way is to um, affirm uh, the Korean Supreme Court ruling uh, and to take action now to provide compensation from the South Korean government in order to, uh, you know, uh, respect uh, the ruling uh, while also uh, addressing uh, this as an issue um, of concern in the, in the South Korea-Japan relationship. Uh, and talking to uh, the government of Japan uh, about this issue. Now, one of the problems is the government of Japan hasn't really wanted to talk about uh, the Supreme Court ruling um, under the terms that the South Korean government might prefer. And so that is a real big challenge, is that basically both governments are very path-dependent uh, in their focus on how to talk about this issue. And yet... Um, you know, ultimately, the Japan-South Korea relationship is, there's a legal underpinning, but it's a political relationship, and the job of leaders is just to solve political problems. Uh, and so we do have uh, an issue that is old and new, that is generated by the Korean Supreme Court ruling, and I think that the only way for it to really be resolved is politically. And so I personally was a big fan of a proposal that emerged earlier in the spring um, from the South Korean private sector to raise voluntarily a fund that could be used to compensate for forced labor. Uh, and that particular proposal also left open the possibility that Japanese firms might want to join. But I feel that that proposal was not allowed to flourish uh, because the governments got involved. And I actually think it would have been better if the South Korean private sector had just gone ahead and established the fund uh, because the governments themselves were moving in a different direction. And so, you know, frankly, as we were talking earlier, one of the things, one of the, you know, indicators of concern for me as I look at the way that the Moon administration has been addressing this issue was the fact that they brought that private sector fund under control and made it into a government proposal rather than uh, allowing uh, that uh, voluntary effort from civil society and the private sector to go forward uh, as a means by which to uh, serve as a safety valve and release uh, in terms of addressing this particular political issue. But I think on, on that issue, it's sort of raised the idea, is it compensation or punishment? So if... Korean society, Korean companies were to provide into a fund so that uh, victims of forced labor could be paid, either the companies may say, why do we have to pay? Or uh, the victims or society may say, well, we don't really want Korea companies to pay. We want it to be from Japan because they were the cause of it, would be the view. Um, and then the other thing would be the scope of the issue. So we have the current two court rulings but then others have pointed out that there are pending or potential cases that could be up to $20 billion. 
So, I mean, that's a whole, you know, then it's not just the, the near-term thing, but also the yeah. what could be a very large number. So, so if I could just come back in on this. I mean, I personally believe that it is a mistake, and this is just my personal view. I think that it is a mistake for the South Korean government to try to use, uh, you know, these particular issues in order to compel a response from the government of Japan on issues of history. Uh, because anything that is compelled is not, by definition, not going to be sincere. And so that actually means that, you know, the Korean government has to wait until the government and people and sentiment in Japan uh, change around this issue. But anything that, you know, is compelled, I think that is going to be worthless. Uh, and so to use compulsion as a way of achieving the objective is never going to address the historical issue. And uh, on, the, on your second question about the uh, rise of China, can that be, uh, can that be uh, incentive for two countries to start working together? That is a very good point. And that someone always has been North Korea for Japan and South Korea for the longest time. But now that uh, uh, current uh, South Korean administration takes a very, very different approach and out outlook vis-a-vis -vis the uh, North Korea and uh, how to how to respond to them. Um, that's gone. So can China be the uh, big enough incentive? It should be. But so far, um, I would I would say um, it hasn't worked that way. I mean, I'm hopeful that it would at some point, but hope that some point would. I hope come sooner rather than later. Uh, Pat, but you know, if you ask a question, you're leaving yourself open to any of them asking you a question when you're up here. But okay, go ahead. So the question is partly for Yuki, and I know she has to leave early, um, so I can ask this question. I, this has been such a rational, intelligent, civil discussion, but we're dealing with a very hyper-emotional issue when it comes to the domestic population in South Korea and Japan. I'm wondering if at least, and maybe in particular Scott and Yuki, could it characterize the constituencies of President Moon and Prime Minister Abe on some of these issues, and it wasn't just this issue. I mean, the, the radar lock-on a few months ago was, of course, the center, center of attention, uh, and the rulings last year, of course, in October, November, um, on compensation. In addition, though, and here's the bright part of this question, is Japan just had an upper house election. Abe's strong right now in Japan, and as far as I know, South Korea doesn't face local elections until next spring. So isn't this the critical window when domestic politics should not intrude upon leaders taking some statesmanlike action and trying to put this uh, behind them? I'll be brave. I'll be the first one to do it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think um, in terms of, in, in the sense that uh, from, I only speak for Japan, leave uh, Scott, uh, South Korea for Scott entirely. Um, this will be um, a, a good time for Prime Minister Abe to take some courageous steps. But I do feel that um, because, after all, he's been in the office since, you know, when the two, 2015 Comfort Woman Agreement was reached. So the way that the Moon administration handled that agreement really kind of, I think, discouraging him to take any more statesmen's like action when it comes to history issues with South Korea. That's my first response. Um, and uh, what has been happening is um, Scott was talking about, uh, you know, his sense of uh, Moon administration try to work down this issue toward kind of fundamentally revising, opening this, you know, Pandora's box 
touching the 1965 normalization agreement. And, and I think that the process, you know, several years process since he came into the office really, I think, um, alienated even some in Japan even are the deepest sympathizer for South Korea and an advocate for a more civil dialogue, more, you know, empathetic response from Japanese government. And case to the point, um, recently there is a, uh, there is a uh, book published by uh, Ambassador Muto, who was an uh, ambassador to Korea. And he were, he was an ambassador to Korea, Korea from Japan at the very difficult time. And yet he really was one of the people who really deeply understood that these issues are complicated, but it really needs to be resolved. But then he also is a strong advocate that it takes two to tango. And he's been speaking and taught, you know, writing like the Ambassador Muto that I don't know. So even for someone who really deeply under, has, has that level of deep understanding of the complexity of the relationship, for him to come out that way, to me, it was very alarming that how, how those people are alienated, even those people are very uncomfortable about how um, government in Seoul is handling some of these issues. So I think the, uh, we often hear, heard about, you know, Korea fatigue within and outside of Japanese government, and we all, always like to think that it's limited to a certain number of, you know, Prime Minister Abe's base, which are very conservative, but my sense is that it is really spreading. It is wider than we'd like to think. And if it, it really is wider than we'd like to think, it is a harder, harder problem to tackle because I think Japan often doesn't come out on really cleanly on the one side of the debate, but if they do, it's hard for them to move from that. So... In, in, in South Korea, I, I kind of look at this on two levels. Uh, one is the emotional level, which really puts a premium on group action and gives an impression of a monolithic response. And the other is an underlying national security debate type level. And if I think back over the course of the past 10 to 15 years uh, about uh, the evolving nature of South Korean debates over Japan, what is striking to me at this moment is that there is a strand of thought that is being expressed publicly uh, about South Korea's national security need for a good relationship with Japan that you couldn't find 15 years ago because the emotion was so overwhelming. But what I worry about is that the emergence of this debate in South Korea is coinciding with what Yuki described, uh, the disappearance of a debate uh, about the possibility of South Korea as a strategic partner in Japan. Okay, we'll take just a, a few more. Sir, and we'll, we'll take two right here. Sir. Um, thank you for all your answers. Um, my question is just straight and simple. Uh, does Japan really want U.S. intervention at this point? And what does Japan really want at the end of, end of all this happening? What does Japan want in the end of all this? Um, on on this, by I mean this 
current issue or more broadly on U.S.-South Korea relations, I mean, Japan-South Korea relations? Because my answer to those answers would be very different. Overall? Um, overall, I think Japanese government just really wants South Korean government to uphold the what Scott described, the uh, basis of the normalization treaty, stay intact, honoring the uh, t uh, honoring all the government to government agreement that two countries have signed. Do not walk walk it back, um, and especially. 2015 Comfort Woman Agreement. So that was why I think the dismantlement of that foundation was 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 really sent did send a, a strong message to Tokyo that we cannot work with this government. But does does Japan not want South Korea as a partner? No, Japan wants South Korea to be a partner, and then I think the two countries should be a partner. They're, they have actually more regional and global concerns in common that they defer. But, um, but I think that uh, it, I'll, I'll refer back to what I, what I said in response to Patrick's question, that uh, this past couple of years' development really have put deep questions in the minds of Japanese, not limiting to Japanese government officials, about... Any agreement that Tokyo reach at official level with Seoul, can that be upheld long, you know, long term, or will that be an, another transient agreement that, uh, with a new president, they're going to be they're they're going to be um, they're going to be appended? And then I think their last line of defense, and this was true when um, Japan South Korea relation went through similar diplomatic tension during the Nomihyun administration, is that yes, there are all these disagreements. It's very hard to work with this government, but this fundamental box that we created together in 1965 was not touched. This government seems to be trying to touch that box, and that all bets are off when it comes to that. So I really don't know what kind of end game Japan, Japanese government or Japan as a country sees in this at the end of this current tension, but I do think that uh, I do think that. Uh, you know, even at the height of this tension, Japan does um, Japan does uh, like to have a stable relationship with uh, Korea, and that is an interest not only in Japan's interest, but that also in Korea's interest, and also uh, also frankly American interest. Okay, we'll take one more question, then we'll defer all the others to for the second panel. So, right here in the center. Well, thank you. My name is Jung Lee of Donga Daily Newspaper. Um, Koreans understand how sensitive and delicate the issue is, but a lot of uh, Koreans still think that to link the history issue to economic retaliatory measure is a totally different story. So I would like to ask to Ms. Yuki Tatsumi what you think about this. And just one more question. Uh, Japan raised suspicions that South Korea may not abide by sanctions on the North Korea. So according to the report, uh, Japan mentioned something of an inappropriate case um, involving something about being smuggled into North Korea. But um, Japan has not uh, shown any uh, specific clue. So can you specify on uh, what made Japan think this and uh, what would be your response? Thank you. So uh, 
First of all, this is why the timing of this uh, decision, the Japanese government's decision of uh, regulatory revision was poor, is that it often been in interpreted, specifically, particularly in South Korean media, as a retaliation. This is not a retaliation. Um, this is simply the revision of how Japanese government um, implements and enforces its own export control regulations. And at least this doesn't happen during this current administrations, but then between, between the years 2008 to 2010, there are several cases, again, um, the uh, illegal, illegal export of a carbon fiber was made, again, from Japanese company, but then it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was an ex, it was, initial export was made to Korea, and then it went to, it went to China. So again, end user issue based on the export, export control regulations on Japan. Or other uh, machineries like a large um, tank rolly which, and uh, laptop are, again, illegally ex exported out of Japan. So those are all investigated and uh, investigated, and I think, um, I think those who are responsible were charged, but those were within Japan, and those charges were made against Japanese companies. So I go back to what I said in the outset, that these regulations, first and foremost, impact Japanese companies who try to export business with South Korea. Because those companies who used to be able to use this comprehensive licensing um, li license application can no longer do so. So they have to, they have to uh, go, they have to go back to the old ways, which is individual, based on individual export, um, export contract, they have to go back to get those licenses. But can they export? Yes. If license were granted, they can export. So there's, this is no way in a ban. And I'm not quite sure how that is considered as a retaliation, quite, quite honestly. And, um, and uh, I will, I will not, um, I will not um, comment on the more recent cases because I think later on, um, I think I, it, there still needs to be substantiated. I think some of the, uh, I think uh, she's referring to the uh, comments that were made by the Japanese uh, politician in some of the talk shows about some of those unconfirmed cases of the uh, um, not smuggling, but then um, illegal re-export or into a third country in this case could have been North Korea. So yeah, what I what I found confusing in a lot of the Japanese statements um, is whether some of the politicians were really speaking for the government or not, because as we point out in our paper, the Japanese trade minister said that we have never said that North Korea is one of the nations receiving smuggled materials. But it does raise the question of well if there are concerns, is it a factual concern that yes they were able to trace Japanese technology through a South Korean company into North Korea, uh, and then if that if that can be proven, was it with South Korean conscious effort or companies, or is it a hypothetical concern? And if it's a hypothetical concern, is it more concern with a Japanese company's shortcomings or the Japanese export control shortcomings rather than any South Korean action? Uh, so I, I found sort of conflicting, confusing messages uh, from Tokyo as either whether there were assertions about transfer to North Korea or if it was, what, what was the evidentiary basis for it uh, and was it more 
on the Japanese side or on the South Korean side. So I think that's one of the areas where bilateral discussions or trilateral discussions would hopefully, you know, investigate of, okay, let, let's put everything on the table. Yeah, so I think this is why this uh, working level, um, official to official consultation on this export control needs to be resumed because that would have been the, you know, that would have been the natural venue for Japanese side to air those right. in a private quieter settings. But then, you know, with, in the absence of that consulted body to be held for the last three years, you know, you could right. say, I, I don't know, I don't know whose fault is that, that, you know, that, that absence, but. Right. And, and Japan has said, you know, there were no meetings for three years. And then now Korea has said, well, we're ready for meetings. And they say Japan's not interested. So uh, one of the first steps is get people into the room at a kind of a, a low level. I mean, not low hierarchy level, but a low visibility or PR level. I guess like a less political level. Less right? political <laughs> level. Okay, we are going to bring uh, this first panel to a close, uh, and then we're going to have a short break as we switch panelists and name tags. So please join me in welcoming or thanking our panelists.
hard on a lot of issues is that I can usually call upon them to come and, and be part of panels. Um, so I'm very pleased with uh, with our second panel. We have really superb experts to, to cover really the, the economic aspect, uh, the security or military aspect, uh, and then also sort of the broader issues of how all of this will impact uh, U.S. strategic objectives in, in Asia. Uh, and as I've told all of our panelists, they, they each have a lane in the road, but the curbs are pretty short, so they can feel free to, to cover issues as they see fit. Uh, Matt Goodman is the Senior Vice President and Senior Advisor for Asian Economics uh, at CSIS. Uh, and before joining CSIS, he had a, a long, distinguished career in, in the U.S. government at the uh, National Security Staff as the Director for International Economics, uh, White House Coordinator for APEC and the East Asia Summit, Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary for Economic, Energy, and Agricultural Affairs at Department of State, uh, really, and the list goes on, as well as uh, private sector um, work in the uh, at Goldman Sachs, heading the uh, government affairs ops in Tokyo and London. Um, and Jim Schof is currently a senior fellow at the Carnegie uh, Foundation Asia Program. Um, and previously, he served in the Pentagon, uh, the office as a senior advisor for East Asia policy at the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And there he was responsible for strategic planning and policy development for relations with both Japan and the Republic of Korea. And he spearheaded trilateral initiatives and regional security cooperative uh, cooperation issues, including North Korea, missile defense, disaster relief, and maritime security. And he lived in Japan and other parts of Asia for a number of years. Uh, and he's fluent in Japanese. Uh, Pat Cronin now holds the uh, Hudson Institute's <coughs> Asia-Pacific Security Chair, uh, and before that, uh, in uh, both think tank and uh, government, he was uh, at uh, CNAS, uh, as well as the uh, Institute for National Security Studies at the National Defense University, um, and Director of Studies at the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies, uh, and before that, Senior Vice President at CSIS. And uh, in 2001, he was confirmed by the Senate as the third-ranking position at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So really three uh, perfect experts to discuss uh, sort of round two of this issue. So, Matt, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Do I have to push this? No, it's, no, it's, it's, it's already it's on. Live. Okay. Um, well, thanks, Bruce, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation for um, having us here today on, a, on an important, interesting, and you know, sensitive issue. So it's a challenging, challenging thing. The, the previous um, panel covered a lot of ground, so I'm not going to go back through the all the economics of this. I'm the econ guy, I guess, um, up here. But um, to talk, uh, I, I won't go through all this, the, the data and so forth. In fact, I'm going to start by telling a story, which I'm going to then park and then come back to, which is. Um, February 22nd, 2013, uh, newly reinstalled Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan came to a certain think tank, another think tank in Washington, whose name I won't mention, but its initials are CSIS, um, which, uh, and gave a speech in which he said, Japan is back. And in the speech, he said, while I'm here at CSIS, my uh, trade team is over at USTR negotiating the terms of Japan's entry into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And um, I was in Beijing about three weeks after that, and I had a meeting with a, a colleague at a government think tank, a Chinese um, scholar, 
who had been saying for the last couple of years that TPP was a, well, initially he said it was just a whale and a bunch of minnows and it didn't matter. And then he started saying the opposite, which was TPP was this threat to China. It was designed to contain or isolate China. But at this meeting, three weeks after Abe's speech, he said, I think China should consider joining TPP. And I literally kind of rolled back in the, my um, chair and raised my eyebrows and you know said, what? You know, shocking. So I'm going to just park that story and I'll come back to it. So I'm not going to talk about the merits of the case. I think you know both Korea and Japan think they have a pretty good case here on the uh, story of, of uh, export controls, which is what I'm sort of focused on. Um, I think Japan genuinely thinks there is a concern about technology leakage, whether it's to North Korea or to China or to other untrustworthy countries. And I think uh, Korea really feels genuinely that this is uh, this tool is being used by Japan, you know, as retaliation for other issues, not uh, for the reasons stated. And um, I'm not going to sort of pick sides, but I'll just say I think both of those positions are genuinely held, and and I don't think questioning, you know, the the the, the a viewpoint of the other is really productive. Um, I will say that, you know, first of all, I think this is going to have, if this uh, dispute continues to play out, it's going to have an economic impact. Um, I think some of the numbers that you've seen so far you have to take with a bit of grain of salt um, because, first of all, really nothing has happened yet. Um, and, um, you know, certainly there's this high dependency, as Riley laid out, um, for some of these materials that Japan sells to uh, Korea for semiconductor um, production, and Korea, in turn, is responsible for a lot of the DRAMs and basic chips that you get in in your phones and other uh, technological um, devices. Um, and so there is a theoretically a big impact. Um, and then there's sort of the spin-off spillovers of this, like the Korean boycott against Japanese tourists or or, um, or uh, beer and cars and so forth, and that potentially could have some impact. But I would say probably the macroeconomic impact of this in a, in you know two very big economies is not going to be enormous, even you know in the in the biggest in the worst well in the worst case maybe. But I think that's not really the issue here. There'll be some micro impact on some of those sectors. Um, but I'd say on balance, um, it's not going to have a huge impact. I do think the bigger impact at a sort of macro level economically is that these are the third and twelfth largest economies in the world. And if they're in a trade war, um, it's going to have another – it's going to put another sort of straw on the camel's back of uh, global risk that is uh, putting the global economy at great risk. There's already a lot of uncertainty about trade in uh, other countries. Um, uh, and uh, geopolitical risks and others, and the, the global growth, as the IMF has said, is global growth is 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 fragile, and uh, and I think this could be another strain on global growth, and that's sort of in a way what I'm worried about the uncertainty that this is going to cause more than anything, but 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 it will have some economic impact, and I think that's uh, that's 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 one concern. But to me, the bigger concern about all this is is what I call the strategic economic impact. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot that Korea and Japan and the United States um, have uh, shared interest and concern about in the economic, in the international economic space that I consider to be strategic. And trade is one of those things um, where I think we have a strategic interest in in working together to advance uh, high standard uh, rules of 21st century trade. Um, uh, I'd say infrastructure is another space in which we have a shared interest in 
uh, high-quality infrastructure investment around the world, high-quality meaning, you know, with open procurement, no corruption, uh, high social environmental safeguards, no debt or sustainable debt uh, uh, conditions and so forth. Um, and I also think we have, maybe most importantly, a shared interest in the future of the digital economy because the digital economy is more than just a digital economy. It's everything. It's everything. It's everywhere. And um, and how that economy is going to function and according to whose rules and standards and norms is, I think, absolutely mission critical for all three of our countries. And I think we all broadly share, we have some disagreements over a few uh, aspects of this uh, question of, of how to, um, essentially how to allow data to flow uh, freely. I think we all basically believe data should flow freely, whether financial data or or um, data, you know, purely used in, in uh, production or technology or health data or other things. I think philosophically we all believe and practically uh, U.S., Japan, and Korea all believe that that should flow freely on the t- on top of a, a sensible foundation of privacy and security. Exactly what that means and how it's defined, I think probably actually Korea and Japan probably have a better sense of what that means than the United States does. We're still debating uh, these issues here. But I think fundamentally we agree more than we disagree on all that and how to do that with an open Internet, with, you know, with sort of no localization of data requirements, with no you know, taxation on cross-border uh, trade and, and digital uh, uh, products and so forth, I think is a, a very clear and compelling sort of shared interest. And so, I mean, and those are, to me, strategic things. Those aren't just a matter of, you know, a little bit of commerce here and there. It's, these, are, these are really important issues uh, in, uh, for our futures. And we, we share an interest in those things. And so for us to be taking our eye off the ball of those things and having, you know, bilateral disputes within that group that are potentially really uh, very damaging and distracting, I think, is, is really missing uh, our, our bigger interests. And so I think for both Japan and Korea, I'd urge them to look at, look at those, uh, those broader interests and, 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 and uh, see this situation in, in perspective. Um, and... I guess the final thing I'll say is just that sort of what do we do about this? And, you know, I, I, I think both sides should I, – I, what, what Mark Knapper said at the beginning about uh, being calm and confident, and, and I, I agree with Scott uh, Snyder that I'd interpret that as being statesmanlike about uh, this issue is very important. I think both sides need to look at those broader interests and, and take a step back and think how do we how do we manage this situation? We may not be able to solve the underlying conditions here, but there are different types of issues in international affairs. Some of them are solvable, and some of them aren't. Uh, and the ones that aren't, you need to try to find a way to manage. And I would say, to me, uh, the way to manage it, and it was talked about by uh, Yuki and other other panelists in the previous round, is to find some way to uh, get a conversation among technical-level people about some of the underlying concerns that Japan has raised. Um, and I'd say if, we can't, if, if it can't be done bilaterally, because it seems like both sides, Japan and Korea, uh, don't in the, at the moment have an appetite for that or, you know, or they certainly don't want to meet in a garage for five hours or something and, and talk past each other, Maybe a trilateral, um, this is where the U.S. may be able to play a role, gets technical people from state, DOD, Commerce Department together with you know, the, their counterparts in Japan and Korea and have a technical discussion about some of these things. And um, as part of that, you could see something emerging that was a sort of 
practical set of solutions. Maybe, you know, maybe Korea undertakes to do a little bit more to toughen up its regime because I don't think it's just Japan that has had these concerns about Korea's uh, the 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 the, um, the strength of the of the Korean regime. Uh, on on export controls, uh, you know, and, and Korea undertakes to do something like hire some more uh, people in their export control um, division, and uh, that gives Japan the ability to say, well, Korea is moving in the right direction, and you find some way forward. That's just an example. There may be other more practical solutions, but I think something like that is within the, um, you know, the grasp of sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, possibility. So I, I would urge the sides to try to find some practical solution like that. Um, but I'll just wrap by saying the reason I told the story about Prime Minister Abe is that that was the first moment that I saw the possibility of a Japan that was going to be looking beyond its sort of narrow parochial interests and looking at these broader strategic interests uh, in economics. Um, having you know started cutting my teeth in, on Japan matters back in the 80s, when we were in this sort of pretty narrowly focused set of trade disputes, Japan was looking above that, or Prime Minister Abe was, and suggesting a possibility for Japan to uh, to take a, a, a bigger role in in uh, in, um, in what I again call strategic economics. And um, you know, you saw that in particular, of course, when they got worked with us to get TPP done. But then after we pulled out, you know, getting the CPTPP done. Who would have predicted that? I certainly didn't think, even though I was, as I say, interested in Japan's playing this greater role, I didn't think they could pull this off or would try to. Um, so that was dramatic. I mentioned the quality infrastructure. Japan just hosted the G20 and got Pre President Xi Jinping to endorse a set of quality infrastructure principles that included things, as I mentioned, like social environmental safeguards, life cycle cost procurement, uh, no corruption, uh, debt sustainability, and so forth. That, that was Abe who did that, I mean, who got uh, the, these uh, countries together. By the way, President Moon also signed that, um, and, uh, and, and President Trump. So, um, and on the digital economy, similarly, Japan uh, put forward this notion of data free flow with trust, which is a little clunky and uh, ill-defined, but it's a, it's a good start of a conversation, a global conversation about uh, data governance, which I think... Um, Abe gets a lot of credit for uh, putting on the table. So I think against all of that, that Japan in particular as the sort of senior partner in this relationship should be the one that steps forward or that I expect to step forward and, um, and, and find a way to move towards some kind of practical uh, way of controlling and managing this situation. So uh, that's what I'm certainly looking for, and, um, and I'll leave it there and let Jim take it from here. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here with you, Bruce, and, and, and with my fellow panelists. Um, I'm going to pick up from there and, and talk a little bit about some of the strategic ramifications and also security uh, issues. And unfortunately, I come at this uh, with a little bit of a, of a pessimistic view, uh, having just been in Tokyo a couple weeks ago. Um, I actually am I'm not optimistic that there's a practical solution uh, to this export control issue or this particular trade uh, dispute between Japan and Korea at this time um, because I don't think it's about export controls per se. Uh, as, as was mentioned, there's a, a, a lot of vagueness about exactly what the, the, the reasons uh, for the announcement and, and the subsequent decision and was it Korean companies not 
up to snuff, or was it uh, the, the Korean government that was not uh, uh, satisfying certain uh, conditions, or was it Japanese companies that were not uh, sufficiently dealing with this? And the lack of a willingness to kind of engage in a bilateral or maybe even trilateral dialogue on, gee, let's fix the export control issue and restore trust in this particular issue, um, I don't think that's what's really um, at the heart of this. And I think this is a symptomatic, um, this issue or this topic is symptomatic of a, of a broader dynamic that in, in my mind is actually very counterintuitive and shouldn't be happening. Uh, if you have a situation that we have now where there's some real question about the long-term U.S. commitment to uh, its leadership in East Asia, its commitment to international institutions, uh, when you have a, a, a U.S. administration that is uh, uh, complaining about trade deficits, uh, you know, a, uh, kind of bullying or, or putting pressure to uh, to agree to uh, certain trade uh, agreements under the threat of sanctions, actually applying sanctions on our allies, uh, browbeating on uh, host nation support and demanding more and more uh, 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 money to support U.S. troops and uh, other uh, measures that have kind of undermined some of the, the, the shared interests that I think uh, 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 Matt talked about and, and, and are very true, that should be driving Japan and Korea closer together. This should be a moment where, as part of their strategy for dealing with this current situation and China's rise and, uh, and Russian activity and questions about North Korea's future, uh, but we don't see that. Instead, we see essentially each country uh, pursuing a, a hedging strategy or a, 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 a balancing strategy of managing their alliance with the United States, but also exploring other opportunities for, for dealing with these challenges that don't include the other country significantly. And um, I think that's primarily uh, because of this, some of the things that were mentioned in the first panel, this buildup of, uh, of a decline of mutual trust and in particular, I think for, for the Japanese side, uh, yes, there was the Comfort Women Agreement and kind of that, that falling apart. The uh, radar lock-on incident that happened late last year was, uh, was a significant uh, blow because uh, traditionally that has been an area where uh, uh, Japan and Korea have had pretty, pretty solid cooperation um, and, 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 and trust. And that was a situation where actually – Japan and Korea and the U.S., Japan and Korea in a trilateral format have practiced search and rescue operations uh, before. This is something that was actually um, part of the new feature of our, uh, of our alliance relationships was to be able to exercise or, or handle situations like the one that happened uh, in, in, in the Sea of Japan there. And, uh, and that, that did not uh, come together. And then certainly uh, the, the forced labor cases and the inability to address that, the WTO fisheries decision, and, and the, uh, a variety of other uh, issues. And I think the G20 was, was hoped for in Tokyo to be maybe this one last chance where they could uh, address these issues and um, uh, some of these outstanding issues, and, and, and that has, has not happened. So, and, and I don't want to, you know, give Japan a pass and put the blame on South Korea because Obviously, these issues are, are, are much deeper and, and, and more nuanced than that. But I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of a sense of, of, I think, some of the Japanese motivation for this. So it's it, to some extent, 
there are practical export control issues uh, uh, involved. And to some extent, Japan would emphasize we're not embargoing anything and, and many other countries have the same status. And this just means instead of notifying us that you're exporting something, you actually have to get approval to do it. And maybe it could be uh, handled uh, relatively smoothly and it would not be a big deal. To me, it's more of an indication of Japan looking at this list of all these trusted c countries uh, and uh, on the white list and saying, we don't think South Korea should be there anymore uh, based on the way that 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 relationship has evolved over the last couple of years uh, and building on, on, on other elements uh, of the past. And it's our decision who gets to be on that list. And, um, and I'm not saying that this is what Japanese government officials told me or anything like that. This is, this is an impression uh, that, that I get. And so that's why there's no specific effort to fix this particular little problem or add a few inspectors and, and deal with this. This is a, a deeper fundamental problem where uh, I think the Japan side fairly um, uh, clearly has decided, again, this is just my impression, that uh, they are willing to accept a, a significantly diminished strategic and economic relationship with South Korea. And in effect, South Korea has made a similar decision, albeit over a much longer period of time and perhaps at not a kind of a crystal moment. There's no one decision that they made. Uh, but as Scott alluded to a little bit earlier, this, this testing or teasing with, uh, with some of the foundations or the fundamentals of the bilateral relationship that um, both countries have kind of accepted, have, have decided they're willing to accept. They don't necessarily want it to be this way but they're willing to accept a, a diminished strategic and uh, uh, economic relationship with each other. And the United States remains there then as the node between them. And it's ironic also because the U.S.-Japan alliance and the U.S.-South Korea alliance are quite strong. And uh, I believe that they will uh, sustain themselves uh, uh, beyond the Trump administration and, and prove to be quite, quite valuable. So... So how do we deal with this situation, what is potentially a turning point in U.S. alliance relations in East Asia, where we had, since North Korea was developing nuclear weapons and missiles from the late 1990s and the development of the TCOG and other trilateral venues that was driving us together, we have accomplished quite a lot in terms of improving our interoperability and what we can do together, and we cooperate. We have policy planning meetings, and, and we share strategies vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan or uh, 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 development goals and aid uh, efforts around around the world. Are, are we in a situation where we have to kind of recalibrate how we handle this uh, going forward? And in the short term, uh, my main message is uh, to go with an, anal uh, an analogy. And I couldn't come up with a, a, a more uh, effective analogy, but I've, I've come up with the detached garage. Um, and uh, this is uh, a, a, a building as part of, a, of, a, of, a, of an estate or such that serves a valuable purpose, but it is, um, it is uh, uh, damaged. It is uh, lacking care. It is, it is not looking as good as, as it used to be, and there may be some structural and foundational uh, problems with it, but it's still uh, a valuable part of, of, of your estate. Uh, but in, in my view in this analogy, the concern is if you do not at least maintain a certain level of quality of this, of this asset that you have, it will get, it will 
decay further. And sooner or later, a new owner of the house is going to come along. I mean, we're going to have new leadership in Korea. We're going to have new leadership in Japan, new leadership in the United States over the next decade, two decades, three decades, etc. And we're going to still have all these different problems and challenges that we face. And future owners of this house may look at that garage and say, you know what, that's just not worth saving. I'm not going to put money into that. I'm not going to put political capital into what it takes to rebuild this asset in our relationship. We have this asset now, and for if we work collectively together to at least preserve that asset, um, then it's more, it, it's more easily repaired and u- you know, utilized uh, in the future. So what is the garage for us right now? Well, um, I think the trilateral piece is a significant part uh, of, of that. It's, it's, it's the Japan-Korea Jasomia is a part of that. That's one of the bricks or, or foundations in, in this garage. It's the exercises that we conduct, search and rescue. Uh, it is the defense trilateral talks. It is the J5 strategy talks. Uh, it is the policy planning meetings that we have. It is uh, caucuses that we bring together. We used to, when I was in government, we'd have U.S.-Japan-South-Korea trilateral meetings before the ARF or the East Asia Summit or the ADMM Plus, and we would kind of coordinate our positions, and, and as, as Matt talked about, there's a variety of other issues on technology uh, controls and norms in the future. Arms control in East Asia is incredibly important right now as the INF Treaty falls away. Where's New START? Uh, what's the future of arms control in, in Northeast Asia? Um, so I think building a uh, the free and open to Pacific, uh, dealing with China, uh, et cetera. So I think building a protective wall around and, and sustaining this asset, um, while it may take a little bit of political capital, a little bit of statementship, a little bit of, of, of effort in the short term, is worthwhile for the longer term future because we will need it. Uh, uh, again, uh, uh, whether it's because of North Korea, uh, China, or, or uh, the regional commons or shared commons issues. Uh, so I think minimizing the, 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 the potential uh, uh, impact uh, of this current trade dispute is, is my priority, and I would certainly like to encourage ways to address this particular dispute. Um, I'm just less optimistic in the short term uh, that we can manage that, and, and I'm a little bit more focused on uh, maintaining uh, this asset that we have and protecting it for the future. Great. Thank you. Patrick? Well, Bruce, thank you very much. And um, thank you, and let me commend you for the panel you put together today, this whole program today. The paper you've just put out, I think, is illustrative of the very excellent uh, analysis you do here at Heritage thank you. Uh, on these issues, and I mean that sincerely. Um, I was asked by you, Bruce, to talk about the impact of this dispute, and not really just the trade dispute, but the overall downturn in Japan-South Korean relations for U.S. strategy policy in the Indo-Pacific. And I think it really does undermine U.S. strategic objectives in the Indo-Pacific region. So that's my basic argument here. We could start with simply the fact that the foundation of U.S. regional policy begins with ironclad bilateral alliances in Northeast Asia. This is not my statement. This is the Trump administration's Defense Department Indo-Pacific Strategy Report statement, which uses the historic language of calling the U.S.-Japan alliance the cornerstone and U.S.-ROK alliance the linchpin for peace and prosperity in the region uh, on the peninsula. Um, And it's true, but that's also a statement that puts the cart before the horse, because alliances are means to ends. So I'm telling you, as the administration has argued, 
that these alliances really matter. But now we have to say, well, why do they matter? Because if they really matter, then we should be doing more to try to deal with this issue of dispute between our two key allies, our cornerstone and our linchpin. If the cornerstone and the linchpin of your strategy are weakened, then your objectives are going to be harder to obtain. It just follows logically. Now, Jim wisely said we may not be able to solve these problems, but um, as my wife would tell me, (laughs) I don't want you to solve the problem, Patrick. I want you to listen. (laughs) I want you to come here and engage. I want you to try and show that you care about these issues. And, and that's much of life. Much of life is trying to manage through these issues. We all know about this from, from the policy world. So there are four, at least four, challenges for U.S. regional strategy and policy that flow from a weak Japan-South Korean relationship. Even though, admittedly, in the three legs of this trilateral relationship, this has always been by far the weakest leg. That's not new. It's always been the one that needs more work and we've been working on it um, consistently, gradually over the over the decades. Um, all of us have done work, but Jim's done some terrific work just in the last administration on on the trilateral security cooperation. Um, but first of all, as this had been mentioned, um, dealing with North Korea is no picnic. North Korea is a persistent challenge for the region. It's what drove Japan more into the security realm in the 1990s because once North Korea started to develop missiles that could hit Japan, as it started to in the 90s, um, then we realized that this was a regional problem for Northeast Asia. And we have to come together. And we did over missile defense issues, for instance. We did over the initial trilateral, they were track 1.5, there were also track 1 official trilateral defense discussions to try to think through how do we deal with different contingencies. They've been hampered, limited. We'd like to see them go further. But the reality is that Japan has always been central. And I remember, and I see Jim Pristop over there, when we hosted Kim Dae-jung at the National Defense University before he became president of South Korea, the first progressive who started the first sunshine policy, the original, uh, in trying to reach out to North Korea, you know, we, we sat down at the National Defense University and had a very serious private discussion about the commitment of South Korea to our other alliance with Japan into the security concern of the U.S.-ROK alliance. And it was solid. It was sincere. And it was, I think, one of the things that helped uh, Kim Dae-jung win over Washington early on. Um, he was well-known. He was a well-known figure. But still, he really won them over as a, as a realist, in a sense, of, of continuing these. And this is the kind of thing that we're hoping, and I think Scott Snyder alluded to earlier, that we're hoping to see out of the Moon administration right now uh, and from all our friends in the region. But Korea is... Kim Jong-un is lobbing short-range missiles into the open wound of the Japan-U.S. relationship. I mean, Japan, I mean, ROK relationship and the Japan and the, and the U.S. Uh, you know, problem with our allies, if you will. I'm sorry. Um, the point is that there are several reasons why Kim Jong-un is doing the, the missile firing, obviously for, um, to show that he can, <laughs> you know, to increase his leverage. Um, to try to get and win more concessions out of us before he's given us anything still. Um, but at the same time, it's an insult. He knows we're hurting. He knows that there's a weakness in this relationship. Our two key allies are not getting along well together, and he is just sort of spitting in our face. This is a reality. We have to be able to deal with Kim Jong-un from a position of unity and strength, and um, that's one reason why it's very important for the United States to try to get our two closest allies back on the same sheet of music and the same record. Now, the second problem that we've heard about already, uh, 
talked about China, talked about major power competition, um, and this has been intersecting several points made in this panel and the earlier panel. The, the, the point made in the last panel, the fact that, uh, in fact, Bruce, in your paper with Riley, the idea that we could be pushing South Korea to greater dependency on high technology in China and or Russia is exactly what we don't want to do. Why? Because the strategic competition, especially with China right now, over these revisionist powers who want a different set of rules from the established post-war rule set in general, is that it is an economic competition that has technology in command of the emerging technologies of the 21st century sort of at the center of its strategy. That's what Made in China 2025 was all about. And if the United States in the Republic of Korea and Japan, these three advanced high-tech market democracies cannot come together and think through and fashion the rule set that Matt was talking about, we're going to lose it. And we lose a lot. We all lose far more than the things we've been talking about causing this dispute. So these are very serious stakes. It's not a war, right? It's, but it's a huge competition for technology and the rule set of the 21st century. And this is, this is why these alliances matter, and this is why the U.S. has to do more to get involved. This is why we cannot let this kind of run amok, and this is the time to do it. Third, the, the, the sort of the tension between our Northeast Asian allies perpetuates general sentiments of rising nationalism, protectionism, and unilateralism, some of which are being perpetuated out of the United States, to be sure, but we have to put down barriers about how far we let this go. You know, we can criticize the United States and the Trump administration policy for America first unleashing these kind of forces. My, my criticism would be of that would be, look, the Trump administration simply called America first um, because it, you know, it saw this is how every Asian country basically pursues its interests first. It just doesn't say it. <laughs> our mistake is that we actually said it in, in our administration policy. Now, that's not all. That's not the whole story. But the point is, there is some truth in the fact that every country puts its interests first. But we have to understand that we also have shared interests. At the same time, it's not a zero-sum game. We have to pursue both our national interests and our regional interests and global interests. It's, again, a, it's a false choice to think that we don't, we can, we can just have one and not the other. And this is where Japan and South Korea and the United States uh, need to come together uh, against these kind of forces. And finally, a fourth point that these alliances matter so much and why a fractious uh, set of relations with our two key allies, our foremost allies in East Asia, is the whole theory of network security. Also in that same Defense Department Indo-Pacific Strategic Report that I mentioned, one of the three pillars is this whole promoting of network security. Well, if our two best, most important strategic allies in all of the region are not getting along and we're not able to control that, we're not able to, to, to move that into a positive direction, what does that say about the value of the network security? That trilateral relationship, albeit the weakest leg of the, you know, the three bilateral relations of this uh, Japan, Republic of Korea, U.S. relationship, uh, is still a growing, gathering, very serious one. As I mentioned with ballistic missile defense, that's no uh, trivial issue in terms of security cooperation. Um, so we have to be able to show that we can do this. Uh, Mark Knapper mentioned the southern, southern policy of uh, South Korea, of the Republic of Korea, and of course the Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific was essentially a term, an idea borrowed from the Abe administration and from Prime Minister Abe. So we, we do have overlapping interests in terms of trying to figure out 
the principles of equality, sovereignty, settling disputes peacefully, the things that we're trying to work with our Southeast Asian friends and ASEAN on against unilateral changes to the status quo through coercion and force, essentially the rule set changing by revisionist powers. So this becomes very important for our network security. It's an opportunity cost. So what I'm suggesting here is that it's not what it's, it's, not what it's taking away. It's what is denying <coughs> us the opportunity for Seoul and Washington and Tokyo to be thinking about places like Vietnam or Indonesia, you know, the Mekong Delta, places where we may be able to converge our interests and do something more than we're already doing to kind of demonstrate the enduring value of a rule set that is open and transparent and, and moving in the direction we want, not anti-China, but pro-order you know, in terms of rules-based system. Um, my, my basic point here is that the United States cannot afford the extravagance of a row of choice among our closest allies. So instead of managing a proliferating North Korea and an assertive rising China, we must now manage the perception of a declining superpower and regional security architecture. That's what's at risk right now. The whole narrative is that China's using against us is that we're declining, the San Francisco system is archaic and anachronistic. No, not true. We need to be adapting creative, agile, working together, and working around these, these problems. So I'm going to end my comments there, but I think the impact on U.S. strategic goals is significant enough for us to be far more active than we are right now um, so that we prevent this from actually truly undercutting the kind of objectives on North Korea, China, Russia, uh, network security that I've been talking about. Thank you very much. It was really great. Three really superb presentations did exactly what I was hoping is really delve into the the implications and the ramifications. You know, it just sort of triggered some thoughts. Is, I mean, first is I think we need to realize and emphasize, you know, it's not just the current administrations. Uh, it's not just a Moon thing. It's not just an Abe thing. Uh, it's not just the current owners of the detached garage. It's, I mean, all of us have been through any number of iterations of of these flare-ups, you know, to that, and including, you know, the DPJ government in in Japan in 2002 and five and what all the other years there were. So it, it is cyclical. Um, you know, and if we do try to look at it dispassionately, and I think that's very hard, particularly in the two, the two countries, is, you know, it, it seems there's the economic issues, the security issues, and the history issues. On the economic issues, um, you know, I think first talking to Japan and saying, well, if you say these export control issues are not related to the the Supreme Court ruling, which some statements seem to initially indicate and then seem to pull back. You know, if they are not related to that, okay, then let's address them as export control issues. Uh, forget the, you know, did someone not have meetings for, you know, did someone refuse meetings for three years? Did someone now refuse the meetings? Uh, you know, just sort of move beyond that. First, the uh, sort of you know Hippocratic oath of do no more harm, put on hold some of the issues, you know the the whitelist removal, put on hold the you know the export control on the three uh, chemicals, and just say okay, let's have the working group bilateral, trilateral work together, and just focus on the issues uh, as as we were talking about, identify the concerns, and then both sides implement the steps to make the export control not an issue that it removes all the concerns that both nations as well as the U.S. might have. Um, so kind of focus on the technical aspect of it removed from perhaps the underlying causes. On security, as Jim was saying, is I think emphasize the common threats. I mean, the, the flybys are perfect examples. Um, 
you know, and the North Korean missiles, it, it's, there's the threat there. There's the, the wolf closest to the sled is North Korea, and then the, the Chinese dragon is the, the one a little bit further away, but much bigger. Um, so we need to emphasize the need to keep the gisomia, perhaps emphasize to people that it's, it's really just a fairly boring technical agreement. Um, it doesn't force either side to give military or intelligence secrets to the other. It's really just a classified information control document. It's the kind of document the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency probably have written between them. If I, of my own choosing, give you uh, classified information, you are required to you know, treat it in this way. So it, it really is not forcing divulgence of information. It's just protecting it once it's, it's given. So I think we need to emphasize that. Um, and then really expand it beyond the current focus on ballistic missile defense. And people have heard me probably for years saying Korea should integrate its ballistic missile defense system into the broader, more effective, more comprehensive allied missile defense system. And the analogy I've often used is, you know, it's like having three outfielders talking to each other as a fly, by, a fly ball comes out. If you're talking to each other, you each have different angles on the ball or the missile coming out you're more likely to catch it or intercept it. So, um, but really, a lot of the focus has been on missile defense, but I think expand on some of the areas Jim was talking about is sort of maritime and um, air domain awareness, particularly given not only North Korean, but now Chinese and Russian um, you know, actions. The history issue is the toughest, um, and that's how do you address the, the two court rulings as well as all the other ones that could come from that, um, and then the comfort of women agreement, do you try to recreate it? Do you go into another round of negotiations? Um, or, and then I would say don't reopen the 1965 treaty, uh, maintain that. But, um, you know, obviously it's all very much e more easily said than done, but, uh, so we'll, we'll throw it open for questions again. Oh, right down in front. Oh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. Uh, by the way, Matt, I read your um, article a couple of days ago, and I liked what I read, just to let you know. Um, yeah, Jim, what Jim said is right. This is beyond just a trade dispute. The history is involved. But I want to share my experience when I was in Orange County, California. Now, uh, you please keep it to a question. Oh, yeah, I, I will. Um, 2012, 2014, they had elections, uh, local elections, and some of our candidates were Asian candidates. Two of them were Korean ladies candidates, okay? So I wanted Asian people to win, so I sent them donations to their campaigns. And one of them came to me and says, I thought you were Japanese. I said, I am, so what? Oh, and the second one says, started talking to me about, oh yeah, I used to live in, in, in Tokyo for a couple of years. So from that point on, we, we, we got to be a, a talking level kind of a, a friends. They both ended up winning the elections. And the third one was the Vietnamese woman. Anyway, my point is that these people read a, a Korean newspapers, or the TV news and whatever. So they know what's going on in South Korea. 
but the media people they 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 can manipulate human mind, and all of a sudden Japan is an evil country. Japanese are evil, you know that they influence that. So that's the stuff that I wanted to talk about. It's kind of like uh, media people here. They they make uh, trying to trying to make a president. Trump, an uh, evil person. It's the same type. That's very sad. This is what was going on. But <clears throat> my the question is, uh, you mentioned something about tri- trilateral talking. Uh, I disagree with you on that. You leave them alone. Let them, let them fight. Let them come to a resolution on their own. They're both 74 years old. They're not teenagers anymore. So that's that's what I think, but my question is, what do you think? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I also said in that piece that I think it is basically up to Korea and Japan to figure this out, and the U.S. has a limited role. But I think the U.S. can play a role of facilitating, as Mark Knapper said, facilitating uh, some sort of conversation that helps move this forward. And I think the kind of technical conversation I'm talking about would, um, you know, be something reasonable for the U.S. to participate in and I think could help the dynamic here. As you say, at the end of the day, Korea and Japan have to figure out how to manage this, if not resolve it. And I do agree that, you know, there's a much bigger set of <coughs> issues at stake here, but, um, and, and, but I'm not quite as pessimistic as Jim just because I think, um, you know, these things have come and gone. I mean, the deep issues are there, but I think that we've been able in – most of the period of, of um, you know, recent history to, uh, or the Koreans and Japanese have, to find a way to work on the things that they need to work on and, and put other things in, in other compartments. Um, and that's come and gone, obviously, and, um, but, but I still am hopeful that they, there's a way to, even if you can't resolve some of those deeper issues, to find a way to work together on shared interests because there are some compelling ones. And I talked about some of them, but, you know, I agree, Russian planes over flying you know, um, Japanese and or Korean airspace or uh, missiles being lobbed into the Sea of Japan seem to me something that Korea and Japan should be more focused on than things that are maybe hard to resolve. And just to underscore, um, I, I think my, my emphasis or commitment to the trilateral piece, uh, I've often thought it's necessary to look at it both in terms of for show and for substance that there are some issues that are really substantively important or will really benefit substantively from U.S.-Japan-South Korea cooperation, coordination, but that may not be that visible to, to, the, to the public, but that we should include um, elements that are, that are for show, that, that demonstrate, and sometimes it could be uh, disaster relief uh, oriented, where it's, it's not necessary for U.S.-Japan and South Korea uh, 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 forces or, or aid groups or, or people to to be together in a particular place, but that it could be important uh, to demonstrate uh, that that potential value, or in terms of uh, protecting against unlawful fisheries or illegal fishing, um, or, or sharing information that people see, uh, gee, this has benefit to my life or to my country, and it's and it's our th- three countries cooperating together. Uh, so there's 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 both, I think, that that need to happen. And in addition, I, I certainly think it's worthwhile trying to. To address the, uh, the the dispute in a in a trilateral format uh, behind the scenes, I'm I'm just I don't want to necessarily put that as the 
the critical path, the thing we have to solve first, uh, I, I definitely want to um, emphasize that, that those other aspects as well. Yeah, if I could just make two points on that question. One of them would be to say, yes, they are indeed independent sovereign countries, Japan and the Republic of Korea, and it is upon them to settle these issues. At the same time, much of our diplomacy, much of our effort can be bilateral. It can be working directly with Prime Minister Abe and his government, dealing with President Moon and his government, dealing with the two countries. But at the same time, there are some issues that we, the three of us have to come together. So an emerging export control regime beyond those specific issues is something that we have a common interest in. Um, and so there are, we have to be selective about where we use the trilateralism, but we can do both bilateralism and trilateralism and figure out what to do. The second thing, and this is what I worry about, though, that is we haven't really talked about much today, and that is that one of the limitations, one of the constraints on the Trump administration is that the Trump administration is trying not just to pursue these alliance goals to deal with North Korea, to deal with revisionist powers, but it's also trying to find a great adjustment within our alliances. It's trying to shift burdens and burden sharing and power sharing uh, onto allies and partners. I think that's a good idea in general. How you do it is very tricky. Um, and trying to do it at the same time when we have a crisis in our two key allies, ah, that's a very slippery slope. We have to be very cautious about trying to do too much at the same time. So I hope that the administration understands that while it's trying to adjust the burden-sharing arrangements and power-sharing arrangements with our key allies, because there's been a diffusion of power over time, because there are emerging problems in the region, and they do have to step up and do more. All of that's fair, but it would be worthless to ask for more at a time when those alliances will no longer be effective if we start to have a falling out uh, between Korea and Japan. Because trying to deal with the North Korean threat, trying to manage a rising China, those are big problems that we're going to need all of us together. So I hope that we get over our, our reticence as an administration to um, understand that this is a, a clear and present danger to U.S. national security interests. The one thing on the, on the security aspect is, you know, when we had the flyby incident, you know, it was a great concern because it seemed to have breached into the security area where that had always been not really affected. Now, since then, we haven't had really similar flare-ups on, you know, amongst the security, military or security. Uh, the Jasomi is really more of a political issue than a security, like the military is involved. Um, you know, and and some of you talked about is is emphasizing trilateralism to try to show the benefits of the countries working together, which then hopefully improves the diplomatic or the political aspect. Now, sometimes it's been done um, on sort of non-controversial issues, you know, anti-drug running or things like that. Sometimes it's kind of been buried amongst quadrilateral or multilateral or far from the Korean Peninsula, like trilateral mine-clearing operations, but in the Strait of Hormuz, even though during a Korean conflict, we would need a lot of Japanese mine-clearing assets to keep the sea lines of communication open. So are there ways of, right now, either expanding it to more multilateral, quadrilateral, et cetera, or doing things, say, now if the Trump administration is very concerned about Strait of Hormuz, trying to get both navies involved in that? Are the, is that options? 
Well, and the, the counter piracy of uh, the Gulf of Aden is not a trilateral per se, but it's embedded within yeah. uh, a broader multilateral. And uh, the North Korean sanctions enforcement um, operation that is kind of based out of the Blue Ridge, which is based in Japan, and Japan is kind of hosting all the different nations that um, facilitate and yeah. coordinate their activities in South Korea is, is, is among them. Uh, along with Australia and others. So so I think there are some op- opportunities there. The Strait of Hormuz is particularly tricky from a Japan perspective because of the legal restrictions on collective uh, defense. So anything they do, um, and you heard it in Defense Minister Iwaya's kind of parsing of, of words uh, with the Defense Secretary by his side uh, yesterday, would keep it in terms of limited to Japan or Japan-connected or Japan-related shipping. Um, so it's hard, but I think there is information facilitate. They could share information. They could. They just might not be able to actively coordinate together or work to, or operate together um, for legal reasons. But there's there's ways to build confidence. We're at a, a very low level of trust and mutual confidence right now, and I think whether it's through expedited. Um, processing of these export licenses. I mean, that's a way to... Japan could just move these things relatively smoothly out the door, and gee, it's not that big of an economic impact. I mean, that's one way to build. Mm. And if there's reciprocal moves on on both sides, uh, and then cooperation in other multilateral venues, there are ways to rebuild some of the, the damage that's been done. Great. Is that Mark? Thanks. It's Mark Fitzpatrick from AAAS. In addition to the, the risks to the broader U.S. objectives and interests that Patrick was mentioning, I wonder, is there any danger specifically to bilateral alliances by the United States not uh, being seen to take a, a stronger uh, mediation role? When, when when National Security Advisor John Bolton went out to the region, you know, there was press reports saying he was going to go and try to help fix this, but the press Reports that I saw mainly were that he was putting the, putting the, you know, making them pay more for uh, host nation support. He, he instead of making them shake hands, he was shaking them down. If this were the George W. Bush administration, you know, Richard Armitage would have gone out there and and put his arm around shoulders literally and uh, and tried to you know bring them together. And I think he may have had some success. The South Koreans I talked to, they seem to want the United States to play this role. And 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 are they? Is there any danger here that not doing so will 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 disappoint them too much, or is it is it best that we just try to let them work it out themselves? Well, Mark, it's a good question, but of course, this is not just about uh, how we're treating Japan and Korea. It's sort of the attitude that allies should be doing more. That we're again, there's a, there's an attempt here based on essentially the constituency that elected the president that there needs to be some adjustment to allies. They need to pay more. We don't want to play the world's policeman, as the slogan goes, or at least we want to play a role that's more commensurate with where we are with the current distribution of power. Um, Our allies have developed. They've got prosperous economies. We're dealing with the third largest economy in Japan, the 12th or 13th in Korea. And they can afford to do more, especially about a changing environment that uh, has been recognized in in the region. Um, but yes, of course, I agree with you. Yes, yes. I mean, this is the, at the heart of my argument is the United States cannot afford to be idle um, because we have many risks, including how this plays with other alliances, both bilateral and multilateral. 
Um, at the same time, let's be realistic and start where the administration is. The administration wants to make sure that others are shouldering their burdens, their fair share, and these are reciprocal alliances. I think that can be a fair part of negotiations, but that ought to be sort of like what we're saying about Japan and South Korea, ought to be more of a technical discussion, frankly. Um, We're not disagreeing over the big rule set. We're three market democracies. We are on the same side of the big picture. Now, for the details, I'm going to send Mark Fitzpatrick from the State Department, when you work there, you know, to go and deal quietly without cameras um, and figure out what's the best path that we can move forward. And people like Rich Armitage, obviously, many hours at the gym perhaps helped, but he could put his arms around these allies and, and try to rein them in. 480, um, 480. Yeah, four, <laughs> 480, bench press. Uh, yeah, he's, he's quite, uh, quite the bench presser. But I think, um, you know, for John Bolton, um, I think he has maintained, as far as I know, very good relations. I know talking to H.R. McMaster, uh, who holds our Japan chair at the Hudson Institute, there's no doubt that um, John Bolton has very good relations with his counterparts in both uh, the Blue House uh, and at the Conte in South Korea uh, and in Japan. And that's, that's important, too. So he is, he is playing that role, but he also has to go out and do what the president wants, which is to figure out how do we increase host nation support, how do we increase uh, uh, sort of the burden sharing here. So it's, it's difficult. That's why we have to make trade-offs. And right now, for me, the dispute wins. The dispute should be relegating that sort of to the priority issue and the other issue that we should have for burden sharing that's, that's a longer term. That's ongoing. We want these alliances because we should see the clear strategic need that's in the Trump administration's strategy documents from the national security strategy through the defense strategy through this latest Indo-Pacific strategic report. It's all there in black and white, and you can find it on the White House and Defense Department uh, websites. That's why we need to invest more time in exactly the kind of diplomacy you're talking about. Was there a hand there? Yeah, so, I think yeah. we have a hand. I guess we lost our microphones, maybe because of the thunder. Get I don't hit know. by lightning? Yeah. Uh, maybe we could just stand up and Oh, there's one. Oh, there's one. It's coming. Oops. Oh, sorry. facilitating further threat with North Korea to fortify the Korea's domestic market. But again, North Korea has been consecutively launching missiles, and we think and ROK needs Japan's cooperation amidst this situation. Was, was the beginning of the question about oh, the impact? The, uh, the beginning of the question was how the trade war will impact the ROK-DPRK relationships. The role of the peace economy and... I mean, I let you guys handle North Korea, but uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I th- it seems a little fanciful that somehow, even in the best case scenario, that an intra-Korean uh, Peninsula economy is going to sort of replace Korea's relationship with Japan, which was the implication, or maybe stated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's multiple layers to it, um, and I don't necessarily think it's an either-or situation. Like, either we have a relationship with Japan or we pursue the, the peace economy and reunification, etc. Clearly, it would be good if uh, north-south relations improve, if there's economic uh, activity between them. I think 
Uh, I've long been a proponent of certain exemptions uh, for current sanctions, specifically allowing north-south economic activity uh, in return for certain verifiable benchmarks on, on denuclearization or steps toward that end, uh, because I think that's in the long-term benefit of, of Korea and of the region. Um, it's not necessarily a substitute for the economic relationship with Japan. And, um, you know, I, I think there will be some rebalancing of uh, supply chains and sourcing by South Korean firms as a result of all this. There's no doubt that uh, there's going to be a, a, a shuffling of, of supply chains in some cases. That's why I think it's actually in Japan's interest in the short term to facilitate these uh, get get into kind of a normal flow of approval of of many of these uh, contracts, uh, so that Korean companies think, well, I don't need to spend a lot of money to shift my uh, my supply. I can I can keep it keep it going. So, as Matt kind of mentioned too in the beginning, it's it's we still have to wait and see what the real economic impact. It depends on what happens from here, and there have been some milestones thrown out here that that will, um, whether it's Jasomia, August 15th, um, and beyond, and then how these export licenses are managed, will tell us a lot about uh, how intense that, that economic impact is. Three quick points on North Korea would simply be to say that we should learn how difficult it is to change North Korea. So even in the midst of a second year of concerted negotiation diplomacy, um, there's no agreement that North Korea has actually stepped back, but in fact there seems to be a consensus that it keeps moving forward with a lot of its programs. And that's when diplomacy is going relatively well, historically speaking. Um, the second point is, as we learned in the Perry process in the late 1990s, when Korea and Japan are not on the same sheet of music, we risk our national security interests in terms of trying to deal with North Korea. We need trilateral cooperation if we're going to have maximum leverage also because China and Russia will have votes on the other side of that. South Korea, under the Moon administration, to some extent, relegated Japan too much to the margins on this process. It would be my personal argument. And now we're paying partly a price for that neglect, um, just as maybe Japan can be accused of neglecting South Korea and, and sort of bypassing it. There was too little attention to each other um, in Japan and Korea. Uh, now we're getting too much attention of a bad kind when we need them to turn it into something positive. Um, we need uh, to understand that if we take a meaningful next step with North Korea, and that's a big if, but that's what we're looking for right now. We're looking for, you know, beyond the failed Hanoi summit, we're looking for maybe security guarantees or some kind of economic incentives to give North Korea in exchange for meaningful steps. Well, if those meaningful steps are going to lead to any kind of development in North Korea, Japan is going to have to be part of that mix. So we need each other to work together if we're to have any chance. And if it fails, we need to fall back on our alliances and our security as well. And it's more likely to fail, frankly, than succeed based on history. So we need each other. Oh, well, I mean, I'm going to go to people who haven't asked one. Okay. Sir? Journalist and foreign policy enthusiast. Um, my question is dealing with uh, North Korea that we just touched upon. Do you think they're going to be emboldened by this um, rift as far as continuing their program or even maybe trying um, some more uh, submarine escapades, I guess you could call it, or even maybe some cross-border adventures? Do you think they may look at this and, and really take a big risk or 
just enjoy the moment. When you say big risk, do you mean kind of a military risk or yes. a? I mean, it is unlikely, but. I don't know what you think, Bruce, but uh, I, I tend to see the Japan-Korea piece of this as a factor in the North Korean dynamic, but a relatively minor one in terms of when you put it up against Kim Jong-un's own kind of domestic considerations and political dynamics, his relationship with Trump and what's going on there. Um, there certainly the Dr. Takashima dispute is, is an easy target for him to, to promote division between uh, Japan and Korea. But he also doesn't, he, he will need Japan to kind of come along um, if there's really to be any significant progress um, in, I don't think, well, uh, it, we'll see. But I mean, it, it would be hard to really significantly change the sanction structure vis-a-vis -vis North Korea uh, technically, you could do it maybe without Japan, but I, I, I don't think – I think Abe has Trump's ear to some extent, and I think Kim Jong-un knows that, at, at least within certain on certain issues. So uh, it would be unhelpful to North Korea to get too active in trying to, to exploit this. I think the other factors are probably more important. Yeah, I would say, you know, it, with South Korean-Japanese relations uh, strained – Will Kim Jong-un do provocative actions? Yes. If the bilateral relations were incredibly good right now, wouldn't Kim Jong-un do provocative actions? Yes. He is continuing to build nuclear weapons. You know, He's continuing to expand and improve his missile arsenal family. Uh, we just keep seeing yet more and more missiles that are being developed and eventually deployed. Uh, so it's just the process has been continuing really for 70 years. So, um, but I think, you know, as, as Patrick and others have pointed out, is, is at a time when there are strains in our two allies, it, it's easier, I think, for Kim to sort of politically exploit that and try to peel away the two allies from each other and even try to peel away the U.S. from either of them as they do. I mean, every year in the uh, the New Year's Day speech that the North Korean leader does, it, it's always appealing to common Korean themes. So he's trying to peel away South Korea from its ally. Uh, and now what we see is blaming the, the current missile launches, which are violations of UN resolutions, on the exercises. So it's trying to say, well, you know, because really I think the missile launches have a number of purposes. They could be annual summer training cycle military activity. It could be developmental testing for the KN-23, which is not yet deployed. It could be a signal for the domestic audience of showing Kim is tough and militaristic, even though he's reached out and had meetings with the neighbors. Uh, it's a message to Seoul of well, even though you've canceled 12 military exercises since Singapore and constrained other exercises, we still don't like what you're still doing, so you need to uh, <coughs> further reduce training and further reduce your alliance with the U.S., and, it, and a signal also to Washington of if you really want a breakthrough or success on negotiations, you need to do what we want, lower the bar, et cetera. So it's five objectives which are not mutually exclusive. So I, I think he's trying to do a number of things with the missiles. 
Scott, I think you wanted a retribution for Patrick asking a question in the first panel. <laughs> so, so my question is about the impact of um, missile defense technological needs uh, in the context of the North Korean short-range ballistic missile and post-INF uh, on uh, U.S. views of cooperation with and among allies. That's a good one. I mean, the, the KN-23 is uh, problematic for missile defenses because it's uh, maneuverable. It's coming in at a can be a, coming in at a flat trajectory rather than a parabolic trajectory. Um, it may be coming in trying to split the seam of the coverage of Patriots and uh, Thad. So it it I think is going to be problematic, but it. It shows, I mean, it doesn't show what some have said as well, kind of throw up your hands and just not do any missile defenses. Uh, I think it shows the need to maintain the programs you're deploying to deal with the other missiles. Uh, and, and now you have to technologically address this one. I, I don't know how far along we are in trying to address the, the characteristics of the KN-23 with new uh, ballistic missile systems or improvements to existing systems. But I think... Uh, we need to have all three countries and perhaps other allies working together to address, you know, this missile threat. Yeah, and just related to that, Scott, obviously when you have a downturn in relations with your key allies, this is the kind of issue, both of these issues, in terms of the short-term, short-range missiles and the new threat this poses to a layered missile defense system, even one that's national or bilateral, um, we need to be working on countermeasures. And is, are we slowing down because of this TIF? And what about the trilateral cooperation to deal with and talk about post-INF world and what we should be thinking about, or not thinking about, but at least we should be discussing with Japan and Korea uh, the implications of this for their security because most of the missiles that we're talking about for uh, that the United States could use, conventional missiles, are really of the 800 to 1,200-kilometer range which would be really suitable for Japan, frankly, and South Korea, if we were to go down this path in the future. Not saying we should, but we should at least be talking about it uh, across our militaries. One last um, thought, and Bruce said there was no other downturn in the security side since the radar lock-on, but the fact is the South Korean military is planning the uh, exercises of Dr. Takashima. Oh, um, okay. And okay. that is a direct sort of, you know, uh, again, opening of yet one more issue we haven't really talked about, and that's territorial issues yeah. uh, to add to the sort of the mix of things here, just to show you how complex and historical and deeply rooted some of these things are. But we go back to the question of, you know, will North Korea do something? They, they could miscalculate. They could create more mischief when you think about that kind of an issue where the South Koreans wouldn't mind if something happened to Japan, you know, either from China or North Korea regarding territorial issues at the same time that they were conducting their exercises to demonstrate what they think is their sovereignty. Um, so it may be China acting over the Senkakus. Um, you know, but who knows? But these things could happen. If, if, if weakness and vulnerability is sensed, people will probe. That's what we saw with the Russian-Chinese test, you know, exercise in part. They're probing to see what, how, how well can we react. Are we hurting? Is this affecting our readiness? Is this affecting cooperation? And if we show vulnerability, again, that's when you do have to worry about things changing from the pattern of the past. That could be the change. So these are very serious issues, and now we're dealing with the future that Scott's talking about. This is exactly where our security communities ought to be focused on these very serious issues because they take a decade or more to sort of think about responses, but we're losing time by having to deal with internal, you know, intramural warfare, if you will. 
Yeah, sort of good point. I should be more nervous than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Vaga. Hi, uh, Vagam Ranian from the Defense and Aerospace Report. Uh, tremendous panel, uh, Bruce. It's great hearing from all of you. I just want to follow up on what Patrick said. How much of what Beijing and Moscow were trying to do is to exas exacerbate the seams between uh, Japan and South Korea? How much of this, this joint patrol was as much mm -hmm. asserting their influence in their new strategic partnership or comedy, and how much of it was to actually stick a knife in this open wound and, and try to jack it open a little bit? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, is is the honest answer? But uh, so I was in Tokyo watching this on TV when it when it unfolded, um, and uh, it was surprising to me. But but there's no it, it, in my mind. There's there's almost no other way to interpret it other than by specifically selecting that area to 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 do that coordinated flight, um, whether it's to stick a finger in the eye but, or, or uh, uh, exacerbate the Japan-Korea tension, uh, I'm not sure. But, but clearly there's a question of, of how would they handle this idea of probing it. Um, and uh, uh, I could see, I, I would think it would be gamed out to some extent of, okay, what kind of, how do we deny certain things in case uh, certain people react strongly? What kind of reactions do we expect? How would Japan react? How would, how would the U.S. react? Would they have to kind of pick a, a use the U.S. Rock Alliance as a means to try to uh, protest against this, to which extent it, it upsets the U.S.-Japan relationship in that regard? The U.S. ended up trying to take a very uh, a tepid kind of uh, 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 criticism of, of that particular flight path to the point where if you're not critical enough, um, then the South Koreans get upset. Like, you know, why are you trying to to, to split the, the the baby in half here? So, uh, I think clearly it was it was um, that was part of the calculation. Um, but I don't know as if this is the beginning of some kind of concerted Chinese Russian effort to split the Japan and Korea, etc. I think it was just a little feature of that particular broader exercise. But that's yeah, I would purely again. I don't think it was navigational error. Uh, you know, and I mean, we know China has sort of probed certainly, uh, you know, Japanese air defense identification zones and, and also penetrated to the Korean one. Um, I don't know how often the Russians have, have come into the area. Uh, that'd be something you, you want to find out. But having the two of them fly over Lien Court Rocks uh, really at this time really makes it seem it had to have been really a, a deliberate provocation or uh, certainly one that would be interpreted as one. Okay. We have... Okay, sir. I think you're going to be our, our last one here, right down in the center. Uh, thank you. Uh, David Rivers, retired. Uh, I was wondering, what was President Moon's reason for rescinding the Comfort Women Agreement? Uh, was it purely political nationalism or something? And would it be feasible to reinstate the original agreement, and would it be useful? Well, I, th I think his rationale was that it um, 
uh, I think he believed it was not something that was accepted broadly by the people and certainly not necessarily by the, 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 the majority of the comfort women themselves, and that it was kind of an agreement that was reached in a more isolated, kind of high-level diplomatic venue and, and didn't substantively address uh, the, the issues that, that, that he thought it, it should address. Um, you know, you could argue that it's still a, it may be a better vehicle to work from as to, to, to then improve or work, work upon. Um, of course, the Japanese side at that time was kind of saying, no, 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 this is it. This was done. Uh, so that maybe led Moon to believe that, well, this, there's no real, real opportunity uh, to build on this. I mean, I always told my Japanese friends who said, you know, the, the Koreans really should get rid of the comfort woman statue. As a result, we've signed this deal. The agreement's done. They should get rid of the statue now. I said, I, I think it'd be better if this removal of the statue was done by the, the groups that put it there themselves because they've come to the conclusion that the Japanese have have addressed many of their concerns. And it may take a couple decades or or, or so, but, but wouldn't that be a more lasting uh, and, and substantive uh, resolution of the issue? So it's, it's, I don't think it was a pure political play in a, in a sense or, or a pandering. I think uh, President Moon honestly uh, believed that. But it, um, I, I, I would have preferred, um, and I think it would have been more constructive, to still try over the long term to build upon that as opposed to um, dissolve. I, I think the primary reason that the Moon administration identified was that it was an agreement about comfort women without any input from comfort women, and that it was done you know, by the previous administration in South Korea as a, a government-to-government uh, agreement that did not include input from the, the people most directly affected. So again, as Jim said, you can argue whether that should have been undone or improved or redone or uh, how the Pak administration should have done it or the Moon administration, but I think that was the, the primary factor. But I, I think it also reflects just the, you know, the very strong undercurrent uh, of emotion that Koreans have about uh, the occupation period and that it, which makes it, you know, and then perception of Japanese apologies, et cetera, which makes the issues so very difficult to resolve. Um, so I think we are going to bring this in uh, on time and under budget. So uh, please join me in welcoming our, our third or our, the three panelists of the second panel. Thanks, Bruce. 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 Thanks, Bruce.